Good morning. My name is Vanessa Byrne. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm co-head of the real estate team in Mason, Hayes and Curran, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this morning. So why are we here? Well, we wanted to look with you at the themes that are dominating the property market in 2019. And to that end, we put together what I think is a glittering array of some market leaders to share their views on each of our four panels this morning. So you, our esteemed audience, represent every facet of the property market. Thank you for coming along. And we hope that you will avail of the Q&A sessions at the end of each of the panel discussions to share your thoughts. We're honoured to welcome Minister Owen Murphy with us this morning. Thank you, Minister. And I'll hand you over to Vincent Wall now, uh, News Talk business editor, who's going to officiate and keep us all on our toes. Thank you. Thanks a million, Vanessa. Uh, that bit about keeping everyone on their toes wasn't in the brief, so I, I hope I'm able to rise to the challenge. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Um, as Vanessa mentioned, I, um, they call me business editor of, of News Talk, uh, but as somebody who's generally uh, locked up in a dark-ish studio uh, from about six o'clock in the morning, um, with maybe one or two guests at best, volunteers, it's a, it's a real pleasure to actually um, see the faces of an audience um, in all your glory, um, and actually to know you're there. <laughs> Radio can be a bit scary that way sometimes. Um, it's great to see such a fantastic, it's a bit like church in the old days with all the, all the grumpy fellas at the back. <laughs> But it's great to see such a turnout here because I think it is a hugely important and interesting topic. Um, and obviously with so many other attractions this morning on this balmy June morning, the beach of the golf club and all of that. And um, uh, so it is fantastic to see that. Apart from the T word, I suppose, the T word from the White House, which as we all know, dominates global headlines. There are, there are probably two B words that dominate uh, our own domestic, political, and, and media headlines. Um, and while the building issue, our topic today, the building issue, investing issue, uh, is complex, as everybody here knows, including the minister, welcome minister, um, and probably not moving ahead as quickly as anybody of us wants, at least it's in our own hands, and we are, we are proposing resolutions, we are moving forward. Unlike the other B word, a Boris or Brexit or whatever you want to call them, which we won't mention and try not to mention today, although I'm sure it will come up every now and again. Um, building and investing, the theme of this morning's conference, particularly with, regarding to the construction of the, the office spaces that we need for the 21st century economy, uh, but also critically, the thousands of new residential homes we need to deliver every year. It is a subject that literally touches every citizen in the state in some way, directly or indirectly. And of course, many of our non-native Irish people are guest employees, are guests to this country as well, in, in a very direct way as well. And I don't need to elaborate, but I will, like whether it's the case of families or young people trying to afford or even find rental accommodation, parents were wondering about how, whether their kids will ever be afford to leave the house. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there looking at the two across the table from me. Uh, you're all too young to that, but it, it is coming, folks, unless the rental situation comes more into balance. Potential homemakers, obviously, uh, trying to get a deposit or mortgage together in an inflationary housing market with understandable and required central bank constraints. Builders, landlords assessing the commerciality of engaging in the market where debt finance is still constrained uh, and where regulatory standards are rightly so quite rigorous. Uh, local authorities, housing agencies, charitable bodies, the state itself, 
either directly or indirectly supporting the others, trying to deliver sufficient social and affordable housing to meet the needs of a growing population, but also a growing sector of that population under stress. And of course, linked to all of that, intrinsically linked to it, and, and that's why it's an important uh, element of today's uh, conference, is where people work, how they work, how they travel to work, whether they need to travel to work, uh, 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 and that's all linked with, with housing and, and, and construction and investment and looking forward and strategy uh, and how technology and other factors can deliver the new solutions to those questions. So in the context of those critical questions, I think, as Vanessa said, we have a, a very interesting, comprehensive, uh, dynamic and informative morning ahead. And let me outline briefly how that's going to be structured. In a, just a few moments, we're going to hear from our keynote speaker, the Minister for Housing, Planning and Local Government, Owen Murphy, TD. You're very welcome. We're looking forward to what you have to say. Then um, the Minister's presentation will be followed. He will be, unfortunately, have to suffer a brief 10, 15 minute uh, number of questions from me. Uh, looking forward to that as well, Owen. Then we'll get straight into the first of four expert panel discussions we'll hold this morning, each moderated by an expert in the field from Mason Hazen Curran. Thankfully, not from me. I'm not an expert in the field. I'm a, uh, uh, an interested commentator. Uh, two of those panel discussions will be held before a coffee break at around 20 to 11 or so, so you can, you can time your caffeine need for about uh, another two hours or so. Uh, and those panel's uh, themes will be on, firstly, state-funded housing delivery, and then followed before coffee by build-to-rent and private sector. Then after a 15-minute coffee break or so, and we'll be quite tight about that, we'll have a discussions on planning, development, and placemaking, followed finally by investment offices, flexi-space. And critically, all sessions will allow time for questions from the UD audience to the panels, uh, of which I'm sure there will be many. And just perhaps on that note, um, I'm told there is an app. I'm not sure it's up there. There is an app for the Yes, there is an app for the event. So please download the app. It has all sorts of information about the event here. But critically as well, it has a dialogue function within the app that allows you to send questions up to the moderator of each panel. So uh, that's one of the more efficient ways using technology to get questions up from the audience. So within the app, the dialogue button, ask your questions and the moderators hopefully will pick them up and pass them on. Uh, we'll conclude the conference with the always insightful and sometimes, sometimes acerbic views of leading economist, UCD uh, lecturer, uh, Colin McCarthy, uh, who will give a short presentation on his views of the broad economic look, outlook for Ireland within the global situation too, of course, and how that might impact the building and investment environment. And just before I got up out of my seat here, I did see Colm actually coming in. Colm, wherever you're sitting, we're honoured to have you at this time of the morning. <laughs> <clears throat> I'll, suffer for, I'll suffer for that later because uh, after Colm's presentation, and just before lunch, uh, we'll have a brief, I'll have a brief chat with Colm as well to tease out uh, some of his views in the presentation and perhaps beyond. Phones off or on silent, please, you know that, folks, by now. And uh, obviously, in the unlikely event of an emergency, I think the emergency exits are at the back. Okay, great morning ahead. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the stage Mr. Owen Murphy, Minister for Housing, Planning and Local Government. Owen. Uh, good morning, everyone, and, and thank you very much, Vincent. I'm very happy to be here this morning with all of you. As I was coming into the room, I bumped into someone I, I know, and he said, don't worry, Owen, everyone here is very friendly towards you. And then the very next person I met said, oh, hi, Owen, what are you doing here, you bollocks? <laughs> so I am looking forward to the questions and answers, Vincent, uh, that, that will come. 
But I might just say, when it comes to the coffee breaks, you might not be too strict on the time, because I know people want to talk about what happened at Love Island last night. <laughs> Two new women into the house, it's caused a big stir. Um, lots to talk about. But I'm going to focus on something else completely different. Um, and I want to talk to you about not just property, I'm, I'm going to focus on, on housing, obviously, given the brief that I have in government. And I'm going to focus on the investment aspects of housing and what's happening at the moment. Um, so my apologies if it is a bit too narrow. It, I won't be talking about everything that the government's doing in the housing sector, but I will be trying to focus on those particular elements that I think are relevant to you, given the work that you're all doing at the moment. Um, and when we want to talk about the future, of course, we have to talk about the past and we have to talk about the present, and I'll do that just very briefly. Um, when we think back to, I think, our recent past, I think it's probably fair to say that we, we haven't had a properly functioning housing market in this country, at least for the last 20 years. I think it's probably fair to say that as we approach the uh, late 90s, many people thought we were, we were reaching a peak in terms of property prices. And perhaps in natural circumstances or in ordinary circumstances, we were. But then a couple of things happened, or a few different things happened, that artificially inflated what was happening in the housing sector. And we're all well aware of these, these issues at the moment, but it's just worth recapping very briefly. From a policy point of view, government policy point of view, tax incentives that were in place were allowed to remain in place for too long, which helped to continue to fuel and create a bubble in the housing sector. And of course, then we had this huge amount, a huge creation of private debt that was brought on by lax lending rules, but also lax oversight, but also this huge infusion of credit that came about once we joined the, the Euro economy. And those things coupled together, um, both government policy, but also individual behavior, led to this explosion in housing, building twice as many homes uh, as we needed, building the wrong types of homes in the wrong places. And also, incredibly, about 23% of our male workforce working in construction, and almost about one third of all tax revenues coming in being dependent on the construction sector. So while the 2000s might have felt like a very good time to be investing in property, investing in housing, and for some people they were, um, it was not sustainable at all. It was not a functional market, and obviously it led to very disastrous consequences. And that brings us to the present day and where we are today and what's happening in housing today. And what we have is because of a lack of capital investment, both on the state side but also on the private side as well, we now have this very large and significant undersupply in housing. Coupled to that, we have increasing demand because the economy is going so well, new jobs are being created, and we have net immigration for the first time in many years. And that's created very visible problems in terms of our growing homeless crisis and very real problems for very many people in terms of the growing affordability gap. And these problems aren't unique to Ireland, but they are challenges that we must face in our own way uh, if we're to resolve them. But I think looking at the present day, there are some very interesting trends when we see what's happening out there. First of all, rents, which have been growing at an exponential rate for a number of years, 20% above the peak rents that we had in, 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 in 08, 09, began to fall for the first time in the last quarter of last year, uh, only by a little bit. But if that trend continues into this first quarter of this year, and we'll have data on that very soon, that'll be positive in terms of where rents are going to come back down to at least more acceptable, more sustainable, and more affordable levels. We're also seeing house prices cooling off quite dramatically as well, moving from, in the last 12 months, double-digit house growth nationally to single-digit house growth, to house growth this year that might well come in line with, if not below, um, wage inflation, which I think would be very positive from that point of view. We also have a level of state investment in social housing that we have never seen before. So a huge amount of money coming in from the exchequer through taxpayers. We also have a new way of financing investing in property. So we've moved away from some of the more traditional 
bank-led models of financing because of the changes that were made after the crash to new types of funding vehicles. And as a result of that change as well, we also have more foreign capital coming in to invest in housing, which, again, going back to what happened in the past, so much of the money that was invested in housing was our own money, Irish money, so that when the crash did happen, it did really ripple through every part of our society. With more foreign capital coming into the country, in one respect, it does uh, protect us from any future shocks that may happen, uh, but it's not without its own dangers and risks as well, which I'll come to a little later. So when we look at those positive trends that we have today, we are seeing an increase in supply, which I think is very important. It's necessary, of course, and we're seeing an increase in investment as well, which is very good. So as I step back from the challenge today and I look to the future and what our challenge is in, is in housing, it's moving away less from the simple supply dynamic of more homes being built and more to the planning dynamic, actually. Are we building the right homes? Are we building them uh, in the right places for the right people and in the right way? Uh, and so that's a, a key part of the challenge, looking at it at a, at a high level. So what does the future look like for housing in our country? Or, or at least what is the future government trying to achieve and why is it trying to achieve that? And before I answer that, I want to talk about some of the risks we face in trying to build the future that we're trying to build at the moment. And they fall into both political and practical challenges uh, that we have in front of us. The political challenges are all interrelated, but one of those political challenges is, is meeting the current demand that we have for housing, but meeting it in a way that doesn't create future problems for future generations. So in the way that the demand for housing was met in previous generations, it ended up harming the generations to come. How can we meet the demand of the current generation without actually doing damage to a generation that will come behind them? And that's very difficult in the politics of the now that we face at the moment. Everything has to happen now, everything has to be immediate. And when you're talking about good planning, good design, and house building, building homes that will stand for 70, 80, 90, 100 years, that does take a degree of time. The other challenge that we have politically is that in rebuilding our housing sector, which was so badly broken, that we don't build it like it was before, or else it's going to break again like it broke before. We need to do something new. And the difficulty there is that many people don't believe it was actually broken in the past. Many people believe that what happened was just an accident. Uh, it follows the same kind of logic where people reduce what happened in the financial crisis to just Lehman's happening. And if Lehman's hadn't happened, we would have been okay. And I think that's a, that's a reduction that um, doesn't stand up to any proper scrutiny. And so the difficulty there is in trying to do something new and people resist what's new. People like to uh, keep the status quo or return to it if they can. And the other political challenge then, and it's related to the first two, is to make sure that we don't have any knee-jerk policy reactions um, based on demands of sectoral or vested interests, that there is a consistency to our policy, a certainty, a stability. I think that's very, very important from an investment point of view. But again, that's difficult in a politics of the now and a, a politics of outrage, which is dominating some of the public debate today, and the danger of the, the quick fix and the unintended consequence. So of course, we have to do everything that we can to help people, particularly families and children, out of emergency accommodation and into homes. But we have to do it in a way that doesn't risk even more families and children following them into emergency accommodation. So we, we try to find the right balance in the, in the different levers that we pull at a government level. And then the more immediate or practical risks that I think we face as we look at housing and investment today, one risk would be uncertainty over, over government policy. And as I express this best, it's when I talk to the Taoiseach and I say, please don't fire me. We don't need a change of minister. We need to keep things on a steady track and keep our policies consistent. Um, and I think that's actually an important point to make, um, not about me being the minister, but about consistency in government policy, that 
you know, when we talk about a long-term outlook and a long-term horizon, not just the next one year or two years, but five, 10, 20 years, which we have under Project Ireland 2040, that people will have faith in making those long-term investments because they know government policy isn't going to change that dramatically in that time period. Another more immediate risk that we face is landlord exits from the market. I think that's a very real risk that we, we face, particularly because <clears throat> if we look at our, our landlord market, 70% of landlords own only one property. Many of them are accidental landlords. Uh, many of them have now reached a point where their houses are recovered to a level of value where they can begin to repay debts that they might have or get themselves into a situation which they wanted to be in, which was, was not to be a landlord. Another challenge that we have is price inflation in the construction sector. And we are seeing that. We're seeing that more outside of housing uh, in other elements of construction than we're seeing it in housing at the moment. We have to keep an eye on it. Another risk is, is skills shortage. Um, we're going to build between 21 to 23,000 homes, new homes this year. Uh, across the, the, the private and the public sector. We have the skills to do that, but we want to grow again on that next year and the year after to get to somewhere about 35,000 new homes a year uh, on average and, and maintain that for a number of years. And to do that, we need about 20,000 more people to come into that sector. So are they coming from abroad or are they people who are already in the economy who are being retrained or upskilled uh, to do that work? Or are we going to depend to a greater extent on new technologies like prefabrication and building off-site? Another risk that we have is the viability of building. And this is really important when it comes to apartment building. Can we deliver apartments at scale uh, at, a, at a cost that they are then sold on at an affordable price so people can afford to buy or rent them? And it is a challenge that we face. And we know that it is viable, but can we make it more viable? And how do we do that without making mistakes that were made in the past? And a lot of that question, that problem, I think, is linked to the dynamic around land. And there are certain things that we're doing to try and address that, which I'll come back to a little later. And then another risk or challenge that we have is capital flight. So the new funding that is coming into the country for whatever reason leaves, whether something happens internationally in terms of global markets, trade wars, uncertainty brought about by political change in other countries, or a change in policy here. So there are some of the more immediate or practical challenges that we have to, to realize as we look to the future that we, we want to build in housing. So from, and again, taking it from an investment point of view, what do we want for the future of our housing sector? Well, I think the first thing we want is a sector that is stable and secure. No more dramatic swings, no more quite violent peaks and troughs, be that in the cost of rent or the cost of buying a home, in the supply of homes, in the contribution that housing and construction makes to the economy, and indeed to the profits or losses that might be made from investing in this sector. So really what we want is stability. Stability for tenants, stability for owners, stability for investors, and stability for the state. That is in the public good. Uh, to have a stable, a steady and sustainable housing sector. The other thing that we want from our housing sector is it, for it to be affordable and attractive. So affordable to build, of course, so that these new homes can be built. Affordable for people who are buying or who are renting, but really making sure that there is choice there. Too many people in our country today don't have choice when it comes to their living circumstances. Or to have that choice, they're making sacrifices that they shouldn't be making in terms of time with family, time spent commuting, all of those things that impact upon quality of life, um, that we don't want people to have to make those kind of false choices. We want them to have proper choice in their housing situation. And then affordable and attractive when it comes to investing, so that there will be a sustainable return and long-term commitments made because of that sustainable return and that certain return. And that comes back to that idea of, of no surprises. And then the other thing that we want to achieve, I think, from an investment point of view when we look to the future of the housing sector is cooperation. Uh, cooperation between public and the private sector. And that means that the state has to be a major player when it comes to housing in this country. And, and it was a player before. I mean, the, the way that the government can be involved in anything really 
is through taxation, <coughs> through regulation, or through spending. And in the past, it was involved, perhaps dispassionately, from a taxation point of view and from a regulation point of view. We need to get very proactive when it comes to certainly regulation because of certain things that we're trying to achieve from a policy point of view, uh, but absolutely from a, a spending point of view, making those big capital investments ourselves as the state, bringing capital to the fore, bringing resources to the fore, bringing our own land to the fore as well, uh, where it's in those really important locations so we can build in the right places, and then using that state uh, leverage, <clears throat> not just to supply social housing, and that is so important because people who most need our help are the people who need social housing, but <clears throat> also stepping into that, that big affordability gap, that middle sector, and that means cost rental. <clears throat> Sorry, Vince, can I get a, a glass of water? Do you mind? Thanks. That means cost rental, and it also means cooperative housing as well, because I think <clears throat> we have to be quite certain of this. The market won't fix the problems that we face in housing today on its own. The state has to be directly involved, and also... Thank you very much. Um, there's a generation, a new generation coming up with different expectations in terms of housing and different expectations in terms of what the state should be doing when it comes to their own housing needs and their own housing choices. Thank you for that. Thanks. Sorry. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> so that's what we want. And from a government policy point of view, how do we go about achieving that? So what are the key policies that are being deployed at the moment to, to bring about that future for a housing sector and that future for investment in the housing sector. Well, well the first one, as the state is a major player, 2.4 billion euro will be spent this year on housing. It's the largest amount of money that the state has ever spent on a single year in public housing. It's part of a package of more than 6 billion euro under Rebuilding Ireland that will spe be spent over the course of uh, five years to dramatically increase the stock of social housing. 50,000 new homes will come into the stock of social housing by the end of 2021, and we're a good way on the road to, to achieving that. Another way in which we're going to be a major player is through the Land Development Agency, and John Coleman's here, and he'll be talking about that a little later. We're going to capitalise that with 1.25 billion from the ISA fund. And the important thing about that is that because we're capitalising it from the ISA fund, it's going to be protected from the normal ins and outs that we have in the Exchequer year in, year out. It's going to have its own funding line. It's going to make it a very significant player when it comes to bringing new land to the market and developing it in the way that we think is in the public good. It's going to provide over its lifetime, its immediate lifetime of 15 to 20 years, about 150,000 homes uh, in our cities and in the key regional drivers. And it's going to provide homes for everyone. Uh, social homes, subsidised homes, more affordable homes, uh, and just private homes as well. Another thing we're doing as a, as a major player is the Urban Regeneration Fund, 4 billion euro under Project Ireland 2040 over the next 10 years. And that's about making sure that as we're building these new homes, we're building not just the, 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 the concrete, the blocks, we're building places, building communities, or in many instances when we look in areas like Dublin, regenerating communities, taking advantage of some land banks there that are being used inefficiently, matching that fund with also what the LDA is doing and local authorities to make sure that we are developing our cities in particular in the best way possible. And then also leveraging um, new sources of finance available to the state that maybe weren't there in the past, like European Investment Bank financing, getting very, very low interest rates, um, using the government as a vehicle to bring that into new developments, uh, which I think is very, very important for some of the things that we want to do around cost rental. Another thing that we're doing on the policy point of view when it comes to investment is making it more attractive for private capital to invest in property. Because again, we can't do this on our own, and neither can the private sector. This has to be uh, cooperation. And so one of the important things that we have done there is around tax policies for some of the new funding dynamics that have come into play in the last number of years in terms of foreign capital. 
Another thing that we have done is around policies around bringing private capital into building social housing. These are schemes like the, the leasing scheme that was in place before, but now the new enhanced leasing scheme, which has gotten off the ground in the last 12 months, because we believe that we can leverage private uh, capital to invest in social housing as well, to get even more social housing built than the taxpayer might be able to afford on its own. We've also looked at new financing arrangements and supports for housing bodies, which are an integral part of delivering social and public housing and affordable housing now into the future as well, which I think is very important. We've changed guidelines around, particularly around apartments, so the new build to rent and co-living guidelines to try and encourage investment into those two sectors. We look at traditional apartment building and we've made changes around the number of units per core, the requirement for car parking spaces, dual aspect ratio, all of those things that we think can actually help uh, make the building of apartments more affordable and more desirable. And also we've done things around heights and densities as well. And then we've set up a new finance vehicle for the private sector, essentially a public bank for home building, Home Building Finance Ireland, which was opened earlier this year and is already issuing loans. And that's to help the smaller private builder to build those smaller pockets of houses outside of our main cities and urban centres, because the traditional finance model is no longer open to them through some of the banks, uh, and they're not big enough to leverage the kind of international capital that's coming in through some of the larger funds and some of the larger vehicles. And then on the affordability side of things, some of the policies that we're pursuing. For, for landlords, we, we went to full mortgage interest relief um, on, on, on um, buy-to-let properties in the last budget, which I think is very important for domestic landlords. And we also have the policies in place around rates and, and other structures uh, for, 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 for larger amounts of capital coming into the rental sector. We've had the help to buy scheme now for a couple of years, which has been very successful in terms of helping individuals afford to buy their own home. And the new Rebuilding Ireland home loan as well, which came on in the last year, which has been incredibly popular. And those are types of measures that we're deploying to help people afford to, to buy a home. Um, another measure that we're moving to now is more the cooperative housing model. So actually building affordable homes and then taking an equity stake with the owner as the local authority, which we've seen work very successful, successfully in other countries. With the rent pressure zones, what we've tried to introduce there is certainty and stability in the rental sector for both the tenant and the landlord. So encouraging new properties to come into the market, coming in at the market rent, and then capping that at a 4% return each year, which I think is attractive for the, the, the landlord and very much for the tenant as well. And increasingly now, we're trying to move into the cost rental space. So trying to leverage European investment bank finance, also finance coming through housing bodies, uh, and potentially also to the private sector so that we can actually build um, a very large part of our rental market as a cost rental sector. So initial rents being 50 to 15 to 20% below the market rent, but over the 10 or 20 years that, that, that those apartments will be on the market, that rent actually becoming about 40% below the market rent because it hasn't risen in line with market rents. It's actually risen uh, related to the inflation index or, or, or something else similar. And then, of course, the new guidelines to build as well that I said are a part of, of addressing that affordability challenge. And the final thing that we're trying to do um, in terms of encouraging investment and the policies that we're deploying is to make sure that we're doing it in a sustainable way. So no short-term taxation policy changes um, that could unbalance the market. Uh, even though they might seem warranted for a year or two, the actual long-term impact of that could be quite negative. We are, for the first time in the history of the state, um, leading with a, a plan-led approach to development. So, Traditionally, planning in this country has been developer-led planning, but now we have planning-led development through the National Planning Framework. That's our vision for the country for the next 20 years. And key to that is this idea about compact growth. So building more where existing investments have been made. 
in infrastructure, in jobs, in community facilities, and also looking outside of Dublin. Yes, Dublin will continue to grow, but if it continues to grow in the way that it has been, it's going to choke itself off and, and, and kill the rest of the country from an economic point of view. So looking at our other main cities and uh, urban centres and using them as drivers. And there's a really exciting opportunity there because we want the population of Cork to more than double over the next 20 years. The same for Galway, the same for Limerick, the same for Waterford, the same for, for some of the other regional identifiers that we've identified in that plan. And that plan with people like the, the Land Development Agency and the different funding streams that we have is going to make that re a reality. But to make it a reality, it also needs private sector investment as well. We have that long-term strategic approach to land uh, use, but also land value to the Land Development Agency to act counter-cyclically. So that if we come in, and we will come into future economic bumps and shocks, that there will be an agency that is there, funded separately from the Exchequer, that can continue to develop land and bring it to the market, particularly for social and affordable housing, um, when the next downturn comes and maybe the private sector steps back in such a scenario, the state will be able to continue doing what it needs to do, unlike uh, in, in the recent past. And then we want more institutional investors. So again, if 70% of our landlords own only one property, that exposes our tenants to incredible volatility as each individual landlord's circumstances may change. We know that the traditional model here um, for landlords has been to look for capital appreciation, and that's why they, they go into the rental sector rather than uh, you know, looking for a, a decent return off a rent roll. And with more institutional investors coming in, I think we can provide more stability. People coming in, larger professional landlords, a larger property portfolio, making a longer term commitment to the rental sector, and therefore providing more stability for tenants. So I think that's very, very important. We have the central bank rules around lending uh, for both the individual, but also for, for builders and developers. We have the rent pressure zones, and we have the, the cost rental ambition that I spoke about in the use of state land. Also from a sustainable point of view, and again, because there's going to be huge investment in this, is sustainability when we think about the environment. We have new standards for building in the, in the NZEB requirements now coming in. What can we do with new technology to make that even more efficient and even more cost effective? But then also, what do we have to do about our existing housing stock? And next week, the government will be launching its climate action plan. And we'll be talking a lot about the investments we're going to be making in the existing housing stock. And the need that the, the changes that are going to have to happen actually in the industry, in the housing industry, to accommodate that, uh, those policy changes that are coming next week. And then from the state point of view, less reliance on the private sector for social solutions, like there had been in the past, and no more investment in hotels or in hubs for emergency accommodation because they will no longer be necessary. And that's really, really crucial when we think about all the people who are, are struggling at the sharpest end of the housing crisis that we face today. So just to conclude, there is a, a huge amount happening, and I believe it is having a, a very important impact. Residential now leads commercial when we talk about investment in construction. As I said earlier, about 21 to 23,000 new homes we built this year, which is significant, and it will rise again next year. Our funding commitments are predicated, I think this is a very important point as well, they are predicated on an average 2% growth over the next 10 years, which I think is prudent, because obviously at the moment the economy is growing faster than that. Even in a, in a worst-case Brexit scenario, the economy will still grow, uh, based on our forecast, our most recent forecast, but at a slower rate. But it will still, there's still more than enough headroom uh, in terms of our spending plans, given that they are predicated on 2% growth over the next 10 years. And again, that's another key point for sustainability. So we need to continue to grow as a sector uh, in terms of housing. We need to do that sustainably in a way that we haven't seen before, led by our long-term plans and with cooperation between the private and public sector investment. Thank you. Thank you.
I'll come over to you, Minister, because you're not mic'd up, so uh, I'll, I'll get a little closer to you. Thank you for that very comprehensive oversight of what's actually happening now, but I suppose more importantly for the economy, for this audience, what should happen or what's planned to happen over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, we have about 10 minutes for a chat. Um, you're two years exactly in the role, June 2017. You, you have suffered a lot of slings and arrows. I'm not going to throw many more at you, to be honest. Um, but do you think that within those two years that you have got on top of most of the problems in the sector and that that will be seen by most reasonable people by the time an election rolls around next spring? Um, um, good question, Vincent. Thanks for an easy one. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the last part of your question talked about an election next spring. So let me just kick that out of the water. Um, we want to go till uh, at least the summer of next year, if not longer, as a government but it's very difficult to have stability at the moment because we are a minority government and people tend to forget that. Um, we, you know, we survive by one vote, I think, in terms of uh, where we are as a government. So it's very, very important that um, we do everything we can to keep stability in place, particularly given some of the potential negatives that are coming when we look at things like Brexit, uh, that we can have, um, you want to say a strong and stable government, but you can't say that anymore after Theresa May said it, but <laughs> that, that's what we need in this country. You know, when you look at the challenges that we're facing, and, and yeah, some are external challenges like Brexit, but some are domestic as well, like the demands on spending side that are coming on, on the government at the moment, which are then being ballooned by the opposition in terms of the demands that they're making as well for spending. And then just other, other things that are happening in politics more generally. Um, we need to have um, strength in government for the next five to ten years. Um, so I don't know when an, an election will happen, but from my own point of view, two years into the job, I mean, it's been a very challenging two years for, for a lot of reasons. You know, I, I, I like to focus on data. I like to talk about numbers and percentages and, and things like that. Um, and sometimes people view that as being dispassionate and not caring. But I, I think it's the role of a policymaker, of a minister, to make sure that they understand exactly what is happening uh, and, and can see whether or not policies are working or not. And one of the things I saw probably about 12 or, or 18 months ago when I looked at the figures around planning applications, commencements, completions, uh, what was happening in terms of investment in the sector, I knew that it was going to increase supply in a way that would have a moderating impact both on rents and on house price growth. And I predicted at the time, and I was laughed at, that house price growth would fall from double-digit inflation to single-digit inflation last year, which it did, and will come down again this year. So that gives me some confidence in the, the knowledge that we are increasing supply, uh, and it is increasing quite dramatically. What we aren't seeing, though, which is incredibly frustrating from my point of view, is we aren't seeing the numbers of family and emergency accommodation uh, decreasing. And it, that should be happening by now. So we are looking again at our policies to see, is there extra that we can be doing which won't be hurting more people? Again, that, that law of unintended consequences. And people then sometimes don't understand that there's a communications problem here as well, and I'm as much to blame as anyone else in this. They don't understand the huge amount that is happening sometimes. So if you look at what happened in the first three months of this year, um, for every two families that presented to homeless services, only one family entered emergency accommodation. The other family we found a home for. So on the front lines, local authorities and NGOs, which you fund through your taxpayers' contributions, um, are doing a huge amount of work right at the get-go. And then in April, roughly, for every family that did enter emergency accommodation, another family left into a home. And that speaks to the supply that is coming on in, in social housing. So by no means is this problem solved. Rebuilding Ireland was a five-year plan. We're halfway through it. There's a lot more work to do. But I do think some of the changes that have been made in the last two years 
around things like heights and density, around things like uh, guidelines for built rent and apartments, putting more exchequer investment into, into social housing. The Land Development Agency, I think, is going to be a game changer. If the Land Development Agency existed 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had the crash that we had. Um, so those kinds of new policy interventions that have been made, I think, are, are, are going to work. My focus now is to, to drive them and to try and keep as much certainty as I can in the market, both for public se uh, sector investment and, and private investment as well. Do you really think, and I'm not questioning your bona fides in this at all, but do you really think the Land Development Agency can be as strategically changing as, as all of that? I mean, I, I think within the public ownership generally, there are about, there's land within Dublin for 70,000 homes. But I, I, I walk up Rathmines Road and there's Cahill Brewer Barracks, 42 acres underused. I can imagine, and forgive the pun, but I can imagine an unholy battle between the Land Development Agency and the Army and the Department of Defence over that yeah. land two miles from the city centre. Those turf wars are going to continue. Well, they've got all the guns, so obviously it's <laughs> going to be a... Uh, but, I mean, that's a really important point. So we can have a vision for something like the Land Development Agency, and we can have it linked to a very sensible idea of 75% of all future growth over the next 20 years happening outside of Dublin and having a vehicle like the Land Development Agency to go down to places like Cork and to strategically put together public and private land um, using the different actors that are down there, whether it be transport companies, whether it be the HSC, uh, some of the private owners of that land, and then put in all the funding and everything else. And that, that is, I think, intuitively the right thing to do. But then you come up against the hard reality of politics and um, certain departments won't want to give up land. Um, they won't they will, want they to... They will find some strategic need down the line that they need to hold on but to that. But that's where we as a government as a whole have to be brave. You know, we already have agreed as a government that any state disposal of land uh, needs to be considered in the first for housing for the LDA. Uh, and then if it is to be developed, that at least 40% of that land is going to be for housing that's social and affordable. Um, so that is, that is the law now as far as the government is concerned. But then it comes down to the actual practical activities of the LDA as they engage with each of these departments and agencies. Now to date, the LDA has eight sites in its pipeline already uh, for about 3,000 homes uh, in some very strategic locations and using Department of Defence sites as well. It's got another seven that are about to come into that pipeline. And again, I mean, one of the challenges with the LDA is when you introduce something like the LDA in a time of crisis, people are like, how soon will these homes be built? And yes, it's there in some part to meet the demand that we have now, but really the benefit of the LDA won't be clear to most people for the next until 10 or 15 years when it has built 100,000 homes and they are affordable and they are on plots of land today that we don't believe are being used efficiently. You say Cahalbrough Barracks, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfect example. When we talked to them about it, um, they came back and said there has to be a military installation close to government buildings in case of a coup. Um, now, I'm not planning anything at the moment myself, um, but, but it, and you would say that's ridiculous, but then when we had uh, Storm Emma, which I was responsible for the emergency management on, a group of people got a bunch of a construction equipment and went to town on a little, little Rinaldi, but they actually constructed snow defences in such a way that we actually needed the army vehicles out of Cahalbrough Barracks to break through it. You know, now, I don't want to, to have a debate with the Department of Defence in a forum like this, but I absolutely believe that those types of sites, at least a portion of them, can be delivered for housing. You mentioned the politics of outrage and, and, and the need not to, or to try to avoid short-term decisions that would have unintended consequences or whatever down the line. Are you, are you pretty assured that some of the decisions you have stimulated in terms of, of building heights, in terms of co-living in particular, and you're probably regretting the use of that term, excited. Uh, that, that, but are you convinced that 
while it's understandable those short-term decisions are being, or those decisions are being made that they're not short-term, that we won't look back in 10 years' time and say, why did we build that kind of accommodation when things have balanced out, hopefully? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a co-living and um, I think a Love Island, and I think that is kind of exciting, Vincent, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, to, to, I mean, one of the important things to say on the, 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 the apartment guidelines, because they had been reformed in 2015, mm. and I came into office and I looked at them and I said, we can do more. We can get more out of a site in terms of apartment building if we look at things like the number of units per core, if we look at things like dual aspect ratio, if we get away from this mandatory requirement for a car parking space for every apartment, if we increase the heights, increase the densities, and change the mix of accommodation that can be in a building um, so that we can have more homes that are studios or single apartments because there's too much of an emphasis that every apartment had to suit a person at every stage in their life. Sure. And it doesn't happen that way in other cities. But 40 people using one? No, no I'll come to co-living in just a second, but this, these are the, the other guidelines that I changed. <clears throat> but there was a risk there, that in changing the guidelines in the middle of a crisis, is that people who had sites they were about to develop would then hold off and resubmit another planning application six months down the line, so you'd actually mm. delay the delivery of some housing. And that was a risk, though, that I felt was, was worth meeting, because I think what would be a mistake would be if we were to just let us continue to build the apartments to the old guidelines and realize 10 or 15 down, years down the line that we could have gotten so many more homes built in places like Harborough Barracks. And because we didn't, a generation is condemned, another generation, to commute two, three hours a day to get into a job. Whereas if we'd just taken an extra six months, we could have gotten thousands of more homes in these very important locations uh, and had a much greater impact then in, in the long term. So I think it was important to make that, but it's always a risk. So that was doing something at a time of crisis um, that, that, that was taking a longer-term view, and I think a good view, uh, but, but could have rebounded, and I, I don't think it has. In relation to co-living, you know, when I, I mean, I'll speak to personal experience, when I moved out of student halls into my first flat share, it was with uh, two women. Um, we shared a bathroom, which no one particularly enjoyed. There was a small kitchen, which didn't really matter to me, I didn't really use, but there wasn't a living room. Mm -hmm. um, in that circumstance, had co-living been available to me, I would have jumped at it. Um, but what happens, and what happens sometimes in the media, is that you talk about a, a concept of co-living, you talk about six or seven people with their own ensuite bedrooms, uh, sharing a sitting room, sharing a kitchen, they've got a gym perhaps, maybe they've got a movie room, maybe they've got a games room. That's your concept, and you say, look, for young people, for some young people, particularly those who are coming to work here, maybe only for six months or a year, that's an exciting option. But it gets conflated with yeah, something you, else. You exciting. Yeah, no, no, I say, no, no, but you say, but you, you talk about the concept being exciting mm. and you give an idea of the concept, but then someone talks about something else and they say, you think this is exciting. You think 40 people sharing a kitchen is exciting. And I don't. Yeah. And that's the difficulty sometimes um, with managing communications around these things. But co-living works in other cities. There's no reason why it wouldn't work here. Two quick questions. I was thinking about this. I have plenty of time, Vincent. <laughs> I was thinking about this. It seems to me that the, the problems you face is like, it's like an inverse Jenga tower. You know Jenga where you're, you're literally yeah. trying to push in a little piece of uh, timber to fill a gap without toppling the tower? You're actually, uh, or pull it out, you're actually trying to put in little bits to fill gaps. Of, and, and, and there are always consequences. So, you know, you try to stimulate the local authorities to start delivering um, affordable social housing. Uh, they do so because they're not geared up to do so by buying some of the private housing stock comes on and then you're accused of, of competing with first-time buyers. Department of Public Expenditure says you're, you're likely not to get value out of all the, the rent subsidies you should be building rather than providing more rent. 
Is it like a tower agenda? Is, 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 is it very frustrating in that regard that there are so many stakeholders and so many consequences? Well, it's an incredibly complex challenge. And people try and reduce it to simple things like it's just supply, just build more houses. And yes, of course you have to build more houses. But once you start to decide, well, where, what types of houses, you then start to come into the complexities of what we see in the housing sector. And in relation to, so at the moment we are using the housing assistance payment to help people on the social housing lists into the private rental market. We have to do that, because if we didn't, those people would be on the streets. And it's that simple. But that doesn't mean that we're always going to do it. I mean, absolutely, when I came into the job, I could see there was an over-reliance by the state and the private sector to provide what should be state-led solutions. But we had no choice because social house building had almost exclusively been outsourced to the private sector. When the private sector collapsed, there was nothing left there. In the Rebuilding Ireland program that we have, it's about tooling up the local authorities in a way that they will always be building houses. And the Land Development Agency will also have a role in that as well. So when we get to 2021, Every new uh, person, there'll be more new people supported into social house building than there will be into the private rented sector through the housing assistance payment. So we are changing that imbalance. It just takes a bit of time. And if we weren't to do it, people say don't do it, those people would be sleeping on the streets, which would be, would be wrong. And in relation to local authority building, when I came into office, yes, it was one of the complaints that I had heard that local authorities were competing with young couples to buy homes, and then they were driving up the price. So the state wasn't getting value, and the young couple wasn't getting a home. So we redirected 30% of our funding into direct build by local authorities. But in some places, it will make sense for the local authority to buy um, if there is long-term vacancy in that area. And we still have that in large parts of the country. We still have um, homes that, to buy, second-hand homes, that are cheaper than homes to build. So there are some dynamics out there that still haven't corrected themselves and will take some time to correct themselves. But each local authority has been told not to compete with young couples, not to compete with the private sector, that if competition, if you come up against competition, step back, look somewhere else. So there'll have to be some acquisition still because it will make sense both from a public spending point of view, but also to help deal with some of the vacancy challenges that we have in some parts of the country. But I've been very clear with the local authorities to build more homes. And in 2018, the number of new homes built by local authorities was eight times greater than the number built in 2015, which was the year before rebuilding Ireland. So, which was a very low base. It was a low base, but like a times eight increase over three years is huge. And we want to keep on going that way and keep on driving it that way. And that's the important thing. Finally, you talked about mentioning to the Taoiseach not to fire you, and I know you were joking, I think. Um, but you also talked about... The, <laughs> you also talked about the importance of, of consistency of government policy, regardless of, of who's in power. And, and we are likely to have an election in the next 12 months. Um, if... Fine Gael is the dominant party in government again next time. On the basis of that consistency and the need for it, will you be putting your hands up to say, I want to remain Minister for Housing? You know, I don't want to even make the presumption that I'll keep my seat in the next election. Um, Fair point. But I've been very clear because I get asked this question all the time. Um, I've got a job to do. I've got a job to finish. And when I came into this job, I said it would be the most important thing that I would do in public life, and I believe that. Um, and so I want to get it done, and I need time to get it done. Um, and when I hear the opposition saying rebuilding Ireland's not working, throw it out, I always reply, well, what would you replace it with? And no one else has come up with a sustainable, credible plan. And the fact of the matter is, and I think this is probably a good thing, that if another government comes into power after us, they will continue rebuilding Ireland, and they will continue Project Ireland 2040. They'll make a couple of tweaks, they'll uh, release some press statements, they might change some language to give the impression of them doing something differently. But they're going to continue to drive local authorities to build housing, as they should. They'll continue to expand the remit and functions of the LDA, as they should. They'll continue to attract in private investors into the rental market, as they should. And they'll continue to increase the supply of homes in a sustainable way. What they shouldn't do is come in, misinterpret the actual public good, 
and have knee-jerk reactions like zoning land in the wrong places or using tax incentives to artificially inflate supply um, and allow our housing sector to bubble up and explode again because we saw what happened last time and we don't want that to happen again. And that's why I'm so committed to the job is, you know, a lot of government is holding the line, you know, getting the right policies and decisions in place. And then, you know, sometimes you've got to take hits to do that. And I understand that's part of my role as well as a government minister, um, to take those hits because people are in very, very difficult circumstances. People are being very badly hurt by this crisis, not just those in emergency accommodation, but others as well. But I have to make sure that because I can see the policies are working but need more time, that they have that time to, to be fulfilled and completed. Minister for Housing, Planning and Local Government, Owen Murphy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. A very thorough and honest appraisal there, folks. I think you'll agree, uh, perhaps away from the media spotlight <laughs> in some way. I think uh, we'll move straight away into our first panel discussion, uh, and it's a, a natural segue, uh, state-funded housing delivery. And I'll ask Nicola Byrne, partner Mason Hazen Curran, who is your moderator, to come to the stage and to introduce you to the panellists. Nicola. Uh, thank you, Vincent, and uh, good morning, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. We have a very impressive panel here this morning to look at state-funded housing delivery uh, to follow on from Minister Owen Murphy's uh, discussion. First of all, I have Louise Mulcahy, Senior Financial Advisor with the National Deve Development Finance Agency, John Coleman, CEO of the Land Development Agency, Brian O'Gorman, CEO of Clued Housing, Paddy McGilligat, uh, Investment Director with Activate Capital, and then Michael Broderick, Project Lead and Interim CEO for Home Building Finance Ireland. Uh, so really, I suppose, Firstly, to echo Minister Owen Murphy, the financial constraints within which the state has been operating over the last number of years in relation to direct capital expenditure and the provision of social housing delivery means that successful collaboration between the private and public sectors is absolute key um, in filling the gap and bridging the existing housing deficit. Uh, so under the Rebuilding Ireland Action Plan, obviously as Minister Owen Murphy has referred to the approximate figure of about 50,000 social housing units over the next five years with a state investment of about 6 billion euro. Uh, so under that action plan and plans prior to that, there have been various and numerous government initiatives um, and, and delivery mechanisms targeted at the private sector in, um, in building the social house, housing homes that are required. So our panel obviously is comprised of various stakeholders in the sex sector, be it public, private and voluntary, and they're going to share some of their experiences and insights in that public-private sector collaboration. And I think really the key message or the absolute component required is that for, to achieve the necessary levels of private investment, private lending uh, into social housing delivery in partnership with the state. So that product is essentially private investment to state-funded or state-backed, with a state, state-funded or with a state-backed return, uh, that um, really that needs to be seen as a product that's sufficiently attractive, sufficiently workable uh, to be an asset class in itself. So first of all, I think that naturally brings us to you, Louise, and the National Development Finance Agency as I suppose the architect of various of these government initiatives and delivery mechanisms. So you might just take the audience through some of the examples of what that structure of public and private sector collaboration looks like. Sure. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, Louise Mulcahy from the NDFA. Um, the NDFA are part of the NTMA, for those of you who aren't that familiar with this. 
Uh, we have two functions, uh, one as state and commercial advisor in the delivery of infrastructure within the state. We also act as procurement authority uh, for delivery of infrastructure under the form of the PPP uh, contract. Um, currently, we have a number of mandates with state agencies and um, the department itself in terms of advising the Department of Housing, Housing Agency, and I think at the moment we're advising um, over 10 local authorities as well as uh, John in the LDA. Um, so we're, we're quite busy on a number of fronts and on a number of uh, initiatives. Um, I suppose successes to date have been under the PPP model um, that uh, recently the contract was awarded earlier this year um, for the first social housing uh, bundle uh, PPP. Uh, that's uh, over 500 units currently in construction. Um, it's closely being followed by um, bundle two uh, that's uh, recently appointed preferred tenderer uh, and they're currently working on financial close um, hopefully by the end of this year. Um, that's closely followed, we hope, by Bundle 3. Uh, it's currently at site selection stage, uh, certainly working with colleagues um, in the Department of Housing and with local authorities in terms of analysing their sites and making sure they're suitable for uh, this type of delivery. Um, we're also involved in advising colleagues in the Housing Agency and Department of Housing on the enhanced leasing model, so assisted them with, uh, I suppose, amending and evolving that standard leasing model into the enhanced lease and ultimately trying to crowd in investment, trying to uh, hopefully uh, deliver at scale. Um, but certainly we've had um, you know, some, some, some good movement there, some traction in the market over the last 12 months and hopefully I understand from uh, housing agency colleagues indeed um, there's a contract signing <coughs> today. So you know, that's all good news. Um, also, we're advising local authorities in terms of their mixed tenor um, land development agreements um, throughout the country. Um, again, uh, some of those are very close to closing, so again, good traction there in the market. Um, I suppose, you know, recognising, I think um, the Minister spoke, there's a number of challenges still in the market, um, you know, and recognising it's, it's the affordable uh, end of things that is, is still evolving and indeed we're advising the Department of Housing and local authorities on a number of initiatives in that regard and I think the Minister spoke to those. Um, I suppose lastly, just to re-emphasise, we are the NDFA, we're happy to speak with people in the market, we're happy to listen, we're happy to understand and certainly we seek to understand in terms of understanding some of those challenges that are faced. Evidently we come from the point of view of value for money for the state, so you mightn't always get the right answer, but we'll certainly try and uh, reach compromise. Um, but listen, again, thanks to um, Nicola for inviting me on the panel today. I'm certainly looking forward to the discussion this morning. Thanks. Great, thank you very much. And could I ask you, we've mentioned, the, 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 I suppose there's the, the, the three main initiatives being the public-private partnerships, the land initiatives with the local authorities, and then obviously the pre-existing or the new enhanced leasing scheme. So comparatively speaking, from a scale and flexibility or versatility point, considering I suppose the audience, be it developers, investors, funders, mm -hmm. what do you think, what is going to be the most successful approach in the future? What is, what's working well and what's perhaps falling short of the mark? Yeah, I suppose, listen, very interesting question. <laughs> um, putting me on the spot now, Nicola. Um, I suppose, listen, at the end of the day, the PPP model is, is well proven. It's, um, it's working. You know, it does take an awful lot of time in development and design, uh, needless to say. 
Um, it is also um, subject to procurement, which some people don't like. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is, it, the contract has been awarded and we've got to uh, following suit. I think um, closely following that is the enhanced lease. Um, again, listen, it's all proof of concept and we're certainly encouraging the proof of concept and we're working with uh, people on the solutions. Um, and I suppose mixed tenor as well, listen again, subject to procurement, but literally, you know, again, it's, it's in the market, lessons are to be learned, certainly, but, uh, you know, things, things are happening there too. So I think comparatively, they're all different, but listen, uh, you know, all offering, uh, you know, different solutions for different parts of the market. Yeah. And on the enhanced lease in particular, I hope you don't mind me, me, me pushing you on it, this was launched to the market over a year ago, and I know there were two calls for proposals. Uh, I believe now that's on a rolling basis, or certainly, yes. certainly the housing agency is open to submissions um, on an ad hoc basis. The, the, it did face challenges. It's great news to hear that it's signing today. So it sounds as though, between yourselves, the department and the housing agency, you have been able to find solutions for the market. I think the bankability of that was really the key question. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, when this product, and it is a product at the end of the day, when we were when we were looking at it, needless to say, we couldn't design for every solution out there when it came to funding. We had to leave it um, subject to uh, that piece evolving. But ultimately, where and the goal is to get to standardised template documents here, because that will assist <coughs> and give certainty and stability to those that are looking at it. But ultimately, that is the aim. And, you know, we are... We understand we have to get the traction, we have to prove the concept, and we are happy to work with parties in the market to, to get there. But you know, it, 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 it will evolve and, and we will get there because we are solution driven at the end of the day. Great, okay, that's good to hear, that's very positive. Thanks, Louise. And then I suppose moving on to you, John, the game changer, as Minister Owen Murphy referred to you as, uh, the, most, the, the newest of these initiatives, the Land Development Agency. Maybe you could take us through the remit, your strategy. I know we heard a bit from the Minister, but I suppose what the audience will want to know developers, investors, funders, what's new about this initiative? What does this mean for us? Why should we support this LDA delivery model? Yeah, so the, uh, the, the game changer uh, moniker, uh, so no pressure all then, uh, I guess. <laughs> but um, uh, well, firstly, th thanks a lot uh, for inviting me along uh, today. I uh, appreciate it and uh, it's, it's a great turnout. So I'm delighted to be here. But I guess just in terms of what the LDA is and why I think it'll be good for, for the market and good for anyone interested in uh, developing housing in particular, but, but also broader than housing, um, is that um, it's the first time that the state has taken a holistic view about how it uses land and what it manages, uh, how it manages its own land within the wider state uh, uh, sector. So for instance, uh, the minister talked uh, extensively there about uh, Colbrew Barracks and the, the question being that, I mean, if you had a field in the middle of Barat Mines today and you had a choice, will I put 4,000 apartments there or will I put a military barracks? Um, I, I, I can see where that might land today. So it's, it's to look at that in a holistic manner and to also recognise that there are valid services and operations uh, ongoing in many of these locations, but to, on, on balance, to, to shine a light on these situations and to say, well, what, what should that land be used for? What's the proper use for that land? And can we accommodate existing operations uh, elsewhere, if at all possible, also within the state land sector? So, so that's really what it's about. And I think, um, you know, if, if, a, if you had a private sector conglomerate, uh, like uh, that, that had different operations uh, with different land uses. I think that's what they'd be doing. So it's really to bring that approach. And um, we're, we're getting good engagement uh, so far. Obviously, people have uh, um, uh, interests uh, in, in, and bodies have interest in respect of uh, 
particular pieces of land, but um, it's our job, we see it anyway, to shine a light on those situations. And, and sometimes, I guess, with the ongoing operations on those pieces of land, it's a bit of a black box. How, how do we know what military logistics are or anything like that? So we, we have to kind of open that up and to, to get into the nuts and bolts so that ultimately government can make an educated decision on what it does with its land. So that, that's, mm. that's our role on state land. And, as, as people know, the, the state land bank is, is very extensive um, in that respect. But I, I guess the, the short term piece is opening up more state land for delivery. The, the blue sky thinking, the bigger piece, uh, and I think the longer term, more strategic piece, uh, is can we lever that state land to, to do more with it beyond just state land? In many cases, you'll have private sector land adjacent to it. So through opening up the state land, can we, can we bring in private sector land as well? Uh, can we JV or can we team up with, with private sector landowners and developers? Uh, that's something that we're very interested in doing in the long term. And I think if you look further afield to, to Europe, state bodies uh, and municipalities, they go further than just having a planning scheme for an area like, say, for instance, we do strategic development zones in this country. They get into the actual delivery mechanism and, and, and development of it. That could be through, say, the funding and provision of infrastructure, uh, the negotiation with landowners and putting in place uh, a system of incentives, I guess, to get development happening in these wider areas. So I think, I think that's the real bigger picture for the LDA. Um, and there are proven examples across Europe, particularly Netherlands, Germany and uh, uh, Denmark as well, where that's been quite successful. So, that, so that's the big, big picture for the LDA. But I guess our near term focus is trying to open up that state land. We, we started off with, as the minister mentioned, about uh, eight sites um, where we have a pipeline of probably more than seven, actually about 10 to 15 at various stages of uh, certainty. So we're, we're close enough to been, been kind of almost uh, agreed on, on doubling that initial portfolio from about 3,000 units to, to 6,000. So we're going to be running planning applications on those uh, this year, and um, uh, it'll be all about delivery next year. And if I could ask you on that, and I suppose initially when you think of dealing with third parties in order to assemble these land banks, you kind of think that's going to be difficult, you know, ransom strips. But then actually, and as, as the minister alluded to himself, dealing with other state agency landowners could actually be more difficult. So what kind of challenges do you see in dealing with other state agency landowners? So be it local authorities, the OBW, NAMA, they might be the, the easy targets, but other semi-states which also have a commercial mandate, as you say. Yeah, the way I think about it is there, there's really three boxes of state bodies. So um, this is how I think about it anyway. So you have the, the local authorities and land owned by local authorities is uh, the, a matter for the elected members of the democratic process. So uh, government couldn't just say, we'll take that piece of land off you over there and we're, we're going to mm. do something on it. It's up to the, the councillors to decide what happens uh, in, in respect to that land. But the good thing is uh, local authorities, um, our incentives are aligned. They want to deliver housing on their land. So um, we're, we're really uh, uh, pushing the same direction, I would say, with local authorities at the moment, and actually working quite well. We're working with Dunleary, um, Ratdown County Council, in relation to a major site out in Shangana and Shankill, and uh, to deliver cost rental, uh, among other things, on, on that site, and also other local authority sites that are quite close uh, with similar schemes and, and perhaps even bigger. Um, so that's local authorities. The next box is the commercial semi-states, which are uh, independent vehicles. They have their own boards. 
uh, they're independent from government, they make their own decisions um, and manage their own funding. Uh, but the good thing about commercial semi-states is that they're commercial. So um, if there's a, a way that we can find commercial opportunity with a lot of the land opportunities uh, that are available um, on, on uh, operations uh, that they have currently, I, I think they're, they're also aligned to make something happen there. And um, uh, you know, you can look further afield to see where that's been effective. Transport for London has a, a very significant property development arm where it maximises uh, the, the use of its uh, kind of natural areas for development around transport nodes. So um, those first two are certainly by persuasion and, and uh, I think we're somewhat aligned with them. The third is where you have centrally controlled government bodies that might do totally different things to what we do. But I think that's where we're saying, well, government, you own these bodies, that means you own the land or the, the relevant ministers do. Um, here's what could happen on that land. Uh, here's where the existing operations could be perhaps relocated or condensed and give government the, the information that it needs to make a balanced decision. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's how we, we look at our portfolio. Okay, okay. And as regards, if you could just touch briefly on the concept of affordability, which is everybody's talking about and nobody knows what it actually means. So in terms of the buy side and then also in terms of cost rental. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're right. It, it, it's two types of affordabilities for purchase and for, for rent. Um, so we have a natural uh, involvement in delivering affordable housing. I guess ultimately that's why we were created, wasn't it? To, to, to enable more land to be available for housing specifically. Affordable. So the government has uh, decided that any land coming from uh, state bodies uh, will have at least 30% on top of the standard 10% part five uh, for affordable housing. And uh, I think there's uh, there's a big opportunity that we actually see it as a, an opportunity rather than a hindrance because there's a latent demand we believe, particularly for affordable rental accommodation, and there's a there's a quite a large cohort of the population that could qualify. The, you know, we often use the term key worker, so it's, 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 uh, that, that's the target market yeah. really. And um, so in terms of the overall portfolio, given that we're working with local authorities, oftentimes local authorities don't necessarily want, not in all cases, but would prefer more affordable housing than private housing, say, to be built on their lands. So given we're working with local authorities, I'd say the social and affordable piece on, on LDA projects will be trending 50% or greater. Mm. Uh, the challenge there is the institutional solutions to the operation of uh, rental accommodation uh, in the affordable sector. Currently, uh, there are uh, none uh, really in Ireland, although there's plenty of potential with approved housing bodies already been skilled operators of, of, uh, of uh, rental accommodation. Um, but there's a commercial basis to do mm. this. I mean, there's huge industries uh, across Europe that invest in kind of mid-tier, mid-market rental housing. And I think we have to look to those uh, mm. for, for clues there. In relation to the purchase side, again, um, I mean, it's a horses for courses, really. It depends on, on where the site is. If we can have two perhaps contrasting sites that we're active on at the moment is Dundrum Central Mental Hospital, where an apartment market rent there could be 450,000, um, and if the shared equity or shared purchase uh, scheme, which is the, the emerging scheme for affordable uh, purchase housing, um, that might be less attractive to someone there because they can only own a certain, you know, relatively low proportion of, of, a, of a more expensive property. Uh, I think that where that could work quite well would be, say, in more affordable areas like Balbriggan, where the person qualifying could own a much larger percentage mm. of the property with the hope to buy the rest out in, in the future. So um, I, I would say you're much more likely to see affordable purchase 
been a, been a feature out in uh, more affordable areas uh, versus affordable rental in high demand rental locations like okay. Dundrum. Okay. Thank you, John. And just, I suppose, as you, as you mentioned, the approved housing bodies, it takes me on to you, Brian. Um, Cluet Housing uh, obviously doesn't need any introduction, but standing back to, uh, we're moving forward, I suppose, to the delivery side and what kind of public and, pri public and voluntary, or, I beg your pardon, private and voluntary collaboration can be there as like an alternative mechanism whereby developers can partner up with or align their interests with approved housing bodies who can then avail obviously of the state funding through the capital advance leasing facility or the CAF and I know Cluet has some experience in those kind of collaborations so could you maybe take us through that and what works well with that model for Cluet? I, I, I think we, we've developed about a thousand units over the last two years um, and we've done that mainly um, working with private developers and private contractors. Um, and I think the, the attraction for organisation of private, the private sector to work with organisations like Cluid is twofold. I think first of all, <coughs> excuse me, first of all, I think it takes out the market risk. So there's a guaranteed takeout at that, whether it's a proportion of schemes or whole schemes. So there's a, there's a significant incentive there. Um, where it's a proportion of schemes, it comes to the other advantage, which is that we we're professional property managers, so all our property managers are licensed property professionals, so that. If a proportion of, if Cluid are taking out a proportion of a, of, a, of a larger private development, that they know that the management standards are not going to negatively impact on the private sales. So I think it, it's that kind of combination of, of the two factors which make, um, which make us an attractive option to work with, mm. with the private sector. Mm. And then, I suppose, standing back from the delivery side back to the funding side and the way approved housing bodies are funded, traditionally in order to top up that CAF funding, the only uh, other finance available was from the Housing Finance Agency, whereas there are now increasing opportunities for traditional lenders in that, in that space and also alternative lenders. Yeah, we, over the last 12 months, we, we've been looking past the Housing Finance Agency. Um, now, we have a good relationship with Housing Finance Agency, and, but we're looking to complement the sources of funding. I, mean, I think there are two incentives. First of all, having only one source of funding is, first of all, a vulnerability from a corporate interest point of view and risk. But secondly, there's a, there's a significant incentive on the part of government to move outside of state funding. The Housing Finance Agency is a state funder, and we've benefited hugely by working with them over the last um, eight, nine years. Um, but I think what we've developed over the last year is we've gone out to the market. Um, we've discovered quite a lot of interest in what Cluid brings to the market uh, and what housing associations bring. And because it's backed by a 30-year um, <coughs> loan, it's, very, it's of great interest to a number of funders out there who, who want that regular, consistent, assured return over a long period of time. So our lending is backed by um, a payment and availability agreement, which guarantees repayments over that 30-year period, but is also indexed to, to inflation, so they know there's a guaranteed, in, guaranteed return. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been attractive to a, a number of different types of funders. Not all funders, but, but there's a significant interest. So we, we will have a, an additional facility in place within, before the end of the year. Um, and I think that's where the future will be. Um, most of the housing systems throughout Europe have, have been built by private funding coming in um, and, and building up that stock of housing. And has there been much interest in, 
in, in, in the, the number of, be it traditional or alternative lenders, who want to provide that facility? You, significant interest, yeah, <laughs> and we're, we're still we're still on the um, non-disclosure. So I mean, but yeah, yeah. but it, we, we we expect and we're we're extremely confident that we will have something in place by the end of the year. Yeah, okay. And and in relation, if I can ask you about the mortgage to rent scheme, I know the Clued was integral to the development of the mortgage to rent scheme in conjunction with the department. <coughs> And I suppose with the still significant numbers of home mortgages in arrears and the widespread offloading of residential loan portfolios to international operators, what is your view? Do you see the potential emergence of a commercial mortgage to rent? I know we're certainly hearing about it in the market. Yeah, I, I, I think this is, I suppose, you know, we've been successful in tackling a number of the legacy issues from, from the crash. I mean, nobody, nobody anymore talks about ghost estates or pyrite because, you know, and I see John O'Connor in the audience there, I mean, and from the housing agency, you know, we have resolved a lot of problems, but there are one critical issue which hasn't been resolved is this bulk of, it's estimated there's about 28 to 30,000 mortgages, which are more than two years in arrears. That's affecting our financial institutions. It's also affecting everybody who pays any kind of loans um, on, on property and increasing interest rates and so on as a result of having to compensate for, 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 the, for, for the numbers of mortgages but also the, the vulnerability of that. Um, so it's, it's an issue that really does need to be, need to be resolved. Um, the, the issue with mortgage to rent is very much that it, it's a property, um, you know, it, it's delivered a number, several hundred units but when you contrast that with the 28,000, it's not going to get there. Mortgage to rent is a, is a it, it applies to individual owners surrendering their ownership and then getting a secure tenancy from an organization like Cluid. So they remain in the property paying an income-based rent. So it, it secures their occupation of the property. But it's, a, it's at a single unit by unit, develop, unit by unit program. Whereas what's really needed is somebody to come in and buy the loans and then work through large numbers of those, large numbers of them, and make a significant and critical impact on that. Um, and I think, I think there has been large um, institutional investment, you know, funders looking at this, and, and I think there are opportunities there. I, I, I think the one caution I would have is that certainly the legislature um, and the, polit the politicians and the courts have indicated quite strongly that they need, they need it to be a benign regime. They need, lend, they need the borrowers to be considered. I mean, apart from anything else, we're already at a, at a critical stage in terms of delivery. You know, the idea that large proportions of 28,000 people would be added to the, to the need for housing would be a disaster. So something has to, so if private sector is coming in, it has to be something which accommodates the existing borrowers um, and doesn't flood the market effectively. Okay, thank you. And I suppose while we're on the subject then of the appetite for private lending into the sector, uh, Paddy, if I can introduce you there, Activate Capital have an interesting uh, collaboration, be it between institutional investment backing and then also state funding from the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. So you might take us through your, your market offering in that respect. Sure. Um, so thank you, Nicola, for the invitation to be here today. Um, so Activate Capital, I'm sure most of you in the room uh, know who we are. We're a specialist lender focused on residential property development. And what we do is we provide senior loans to builders and developers to acquire sites and construct housing. Um, our presence on the panel today, this panel, particular panel, as you say, arises because our largest investor is this state through the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, who have invested 500 million euro in our business. 
and that has been supplemented by uh, the international investment firm KKR, who have invested approximately another 300 million euro in our business. Uh, to give you a flavour for what we do, um, the business was established in 2016. Um, we have advanced uh, today uh, commitments to customers in aggregate um, for north of 650 million euro. And as of today, we are funding 41 sites, which in aggregate have capacity for over 5,500 units. Um, what that means, obviously, is that the sites we fund are large in nature, typically uh, sites with capacity for many hundreds of units. Um, they are primarily a starter family home product, but increasingly um, we are funding a number of apartment schemes within the M50. Um, so the 41 sites are located obviously in Dublin, uh, the greater Dublin area, and indeed we have a number of sites then in both Cork and Galway. Um, yeah. yeah, okay. And from your perspective, do you think that the private sector can itself, together with the state funding or subsidies, can provide the necessary level of development debt finance, or do you think the state needs to have a more direct or significant involvement in that? Yeah, so if you look at the state, um, uh, it might surprise, uh, certainly it, it surprised me when I, when I uh, realised the scale of the state's activity in uh, the development finance space. So beyond Activate Capital, the state has a number of interests in the development finance space in Ireland, uh, obviously NAMA, uh, the HBFI. Um, and to give you a sense of the scale of that, about a third of all houses built and sold by the private sector last year were directly or indirectly financed by the state. So the state already has a very significant presence in development finance. Um, to maybe answer your question more directly, um, and it kind of it, it goes to a lot of what the minister was saying. Um, clearly, a, a decade ago, the development finance market in Ireland was very much uh, debt orientated. Obviously, it was overbanked. But in the past ten years, we have seen a very significant transition to a more equity orientated model. And there has been a significant inflow of equity capital, both from public and private capital markets, into the Irish market. And that, I think, is a good thing. Um, it leads to a more balanced um, uh, industry and, indeed, a more sustainable industry. But in the context of, I guess, a role for debt in the development finance space in Ireland that is now reduced, clearly, at the same time, the private sector's capacity to supply credit to development is, a, is probably more diminished. Uh, and that is because there are a lot less players than there were 10 years ago, but equally the uh, remaining players naturally have, uh, I guess, more constrained appetite uh, for development risk. And that is why the state has stepped into the role that it has done today mm -hmm. and why it is very necessary. Um, that being said, if we look at the development finance market in 2019, 2020, my overall view is that, and it's hard to be absolutely precise, uh, but my overall view is that when you take debt and equity together, that the development finance market in Ireland is probably adequately capitalised. Um, and I wouldn't subscribe to the view that development finance or the shortage of it is an inhibitor to, uh, to, to, to new housing or to the mm. creation of uh, new, new households. Mm. Okay, thank you, Paddy. And then Michael, the Minister, had also spoken about the relatively recently established Home Building Finance Ireland. So you might just again take us through what your product offering is and what perhaps is different to what's currently available on the market for development. Sure. Good morning, Glenn. Thank you for, for having us here. Yes, uh, as the Minister referenced earlier on, we're one of a number of initiatives um, set up by the government to try and assist in the, in the housing shortage. And I suppose the function of HBFI is to provide funding to small and medium-sized developers with a particular focus outside the main urban areas. 
Um, I suppose um, we don't, don't see ourselves as, as being a direct competitor to either the banks or, or so much the alternative funders. We fit, fit somewhere in the middle. And um, I suppose with a focus on the, on the main areas outside, as I said, Dublin and, and the cities, um, we feel we can bring something to those areas where there's a real severe and lack of, of funding to date. Um, we've been delighted with the level of interest. We've been up and running now since uh, the end of January, and we've been delighted with the level of interest we've had to date. Uh, we have a number of facilities approved and we have money out in the market at the moment, contrary to, to some recent reports in the media. We have been busily working away. Um, over the next few weeks, we hope to provide a, a report setting out what we've achieved in, in the first six months uh, to date. But certainly, uh, we believe that we, we can certainly make a, a meaningful uh, have meaningful presence in the market and actually make a material difference to the uh, shortage of funding that, that is out there. And as I said, we're not to dis we're not set about displacing the banks or the other alternative lenders. We're to supplement and complement those in terms of providing additional funding. Um, somewhat like Activate, we've been funded by the ISAF. We have 750 million available to us, and we can indeed go and raise in further 750 if uh, if we if we use all of that. So. Uh, when usually capital is not a, or lack of capital is not an issue, so we will be very much demand driven, and uh, we will expand and, and meet the level of demand that's out there. And to date, as I said, the level of interest and demand has been very good. Uh, I suppose one of the main differentiators between ourselves and others is that we can lend up to 80% of the loan to cost of a project. Um, so this would be somewhere where we would differ, I suppose, to the pillar of banks. And also, we don't have any black spots, so to speak, in terms of locations. I mean, once a project is viable and once there's a verifiable demand for the project, then we would very much look at it, and if possible, we will fund it. Okay. And what is the intention of what? What do you think you you will achieve in terms of output? Uh, and what? How do developers make submissions? Well, in terms of overall output, we have a business plan which says we'll, we'll uh, fund up to 7,500 units over a five-year period. That's uh, recycling our 750 million twice over that period. We would expect that most of our facilities would be for about two, two and a half year term. Um, and in that, then, we, uh, in terms of application, uh, we have a, a website and we've gone out of our way to try and simplify the process as much as possible. Uh, we have a website with a, an expression of interest form on that where uh, people seeking funding can actually um, answer a few simple questions, submit that, and then a member of the team will be in contact with them. Again, I suppose we, we have only we have a small team, there's just 20 of us at the moment, um, so we are flexible, and again, I suppose a bit like Paddy's team, we're flexible in terms of uh, you know, being able to make quick decisions and actually being able to turn around uh, facilities quickly. We're certainly hoping or we're striving that the normal time from the initial uh, inquiry to actually getting funding out in, in, the, in a case where it's successful would be in the region of 12 weeks. Okay, okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, and I suppose when we talk about public and private collaboration, I suppose the first question on everybody's lips, and I know Louise, you did mention it earlier, is procurement and does do procurement rules apply? So I'm wondering probably particularly Louise and also uh, John, what your experience is or what your expectations are in relation to um, getting around procurement or dealing with procurement or navigating it, should, should I say? Yeah, I don't think we're going to get, get around, around it, it. <laughs> <laughs> as much as we'd like to. Um, I think procurement is a case of, you know, the parameters are set, you operate within them. There are absolutely ways to manage procurement and a lot of it is, again, in the design and the development of what you're trying to do. 
um, and certainly we work with our um, state partners in terms of designing procurements so that they are successful and don't fall into the traps. Listen, we've fallen into some mm. of the, the traps ourselves, but listen, lessons learned, all the rest of us, we hope to, to improve as we go forward. Um, but yes, procurement is here, it's here to stay. Um, we have to, and I would advise everybody to you know, uh, understand it, uh, if indeed you're going to uh, enter into um, a project that, um, you know, where you're going to face into the public procurement. Um, but then I suppose, again, we've also worked on other schemes such as the enhanced lease where it is a call for proposal. So, you know, there's, there's, there's many different schemes out there from the, the state's um, uh, side of things. So, you know, there's, there's different ways to do things always. So each one has to be taken on its own merits, assessed and designed appropriately. Mm. Yeah. And John, yeah, a um, lot of procurement navigation ahead of you. Yeah, well, we'd be certainly seeking uh, Louise's counsel on that. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, like I mean, it, it's just something. It exists. It's it's there to be managed. It's it's there for a reason. And um, you know, th there's a couple of ways we can look at it. Like quite often, not simply to avoid procurement, but um, we we look to kind of uh, engage the uh, private sector developers uh, who are obviously skilled. Uh, experienced developers to, to work on projects with us where there's a, a say majority private housing component and, and the reason uh, for doing that wouldn't be just to avoid procurement per se but it would be obviously to get the skills uh, as I mentioned of, of the developer on board but to get someone else to put their money to risk uh, in re relation to private housing uh, delivery. Um, so we, we may not have to deal with procurement in those situations but of course where there's not necessarily something in it for a developer uh, where we're procuring a contractor say directly for say a social and affordable scheme that that's something to be uh, carefully managed uh, you know it's tricky because variations and things like that mm. can cause difficulties and the last thing I want is to be up before the public accounts committee someday talking about a, a massive uh, cost overrun on something so it's something to be managed it's a risk but uh, we'll, we'll put in place uh, uh, barriers to try and avoid uh, issues. Okay. On behalf of Mason Hayes and Kern's real estate team I'd like to thank each of our panellists for participating this morning uh, and thank you also to our guests I hope you found it to be an interesting discussion thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola, and thank you to Louise, uh, Paddy, John, Michael, and Brian. And we'll move pretty swiftly into our second panel discussion, which is uh, the flip side of the coin, I suppose, although, as we're finding out, a lot of it's very interlinked. This is Build to Rent and the Private Rental Sector. It's going to be moderated by Michael Doran, co-head real estate, Mason Hayson Curran. And while the panelists are taking their positions there, I just thought from a media perspective, it's great to put a face on John Coleman. Uh, before he's beaten up by the army over Cahalbrua. <laughs> the best of luck with that particular discussion, John. Uh, it sounds like a fantastic initiative generally, though. And uh, Dublin being such a small place and life going in cycles, uh, I knew that Cluid was run and the head of Cluid was a man called Brian O'Gorman, but I didn't know until early this morning that it was the Brian O'Gorman that uh, trained hurling in the FINA GA club to my five and six-year-old girls when they were that age. Uh, amazing patience, and I can see that patience coming out in your professional life, Brian, and who knows the cycle of life <laughs> as I look across the table at them and wonder how they're going to uh, afford Maybe they'll be talking to Cluid sometime down the line as well if plans go to put. Michael, you're in place. Thank you. Thank you, Vincent. Well, welcome everyone to our Build to Rent and Private uh, Rental Sector panel. Uh, the BTR PRS sector had a stellar performance last year. 
Transactions accounted for 1.5 billion in value, over 30% of the entire Irish property investment market. According to some reports, there's 8.5 billion is ready to be spent in this sector. We have an excellent, an excellent panel with us this morning with PRS buyers, sellers, and operators all represented. Charles Coyle beside me has been Vice President Acquisitions and Development in IRES Fund since 2014. He supports IRES on all acquisition and development decisions. Felix McKenna at the end is the CEO of Erbio Residential. Felix has over 30 years experience in the real estate business, including multifamily asset management. Prior to joining Erbio, Felix worked in the National Asset Management Agency, was the Director of Property at AIR and was the Head of Property at Irish Estates. Fergus Byrne, uh, two to that, is the director, is a director in Aramark Property with the responsibility for PRS, BTR Asset Management, Consultancy and Property Management. The Aramark Property team provide a broad range of services to institutional clients across the PRS sector. And finally, Wesley, Wesley Rothwell is the Chief Commercial Officer in Glenvey Properties and has a focus on managing its multi-year land bank. He is a chartered surveyor with over 20 years experience in the commercial property sector. So that's our panel. So Charles, I might direct the first question to you. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion and press coverage recently about the increasing size and scale of the PRS landscape in Ireland. However, what is your estimate of the actual size of the PRS market, both Dublin and nationally, and compared to other more developed markets? what could it potentially be scaled to? And finally, what are the challenges in reaching this, this in scaling to this potential? I know there's a lot in there. Thanks, Michael. Um, well, I think in terms of um, scale, a good place to start is probably to look at the ORTB, uh, who indicate that there's in the order of 340,000 registered residential tenancies nationally uh, across Ireland, which accounts for about 20% of our national housing stock. But when you delve deeper into those figures, you quickly realise that the vast bulk of those um, tenancies are registered with landlords who have less than, than 20 properties. So when it comes to the kind of private, um, professionally managed sector, there's really only five or six players currently who have in excess of 1,000 residential units. And between them, they probably account for somewhere in the order of 10,000 uh, professionally managed uh, residential units. There's another tier behind that of players who probably have uh, somewhere between 300 and 1,000 units, and those players are probably looking to build platforms here in Ireland, and they will probably grow over time. Currently, however, they probably account for another circa 5,000 units uh, currently in the marketplace. So between those two groups, you're probably looking at a, a current um, stock of about 15 to 20,000 professionally managed um, residential units. And what I'd say is the, the focus of that investment to date has been principally in the Dublin market, both in central Dublin and also in, in the prime suburbs. Um, we, I suppose IRES, we've looked uh, at the regions um, quite closely over the past three or four years. Um, we think there is good opportunity in the regions. Um, there's been a number of fairly significant uh, land acquisitions, particularly in Cork by some significant uh, house builders over the past couple of years. And I think we're probably likely to see some uh, PRS opportunities come from them. And I'd say over the next 12 to 24 months, 
I would hope we'll see more PRS uh, opportunities in both Cork, possibly Limerick uh, uh, and, and Galway um, as, as well. Um, in terms of comparison uh, to, I suppose, more developed PRS markets, um, I think when you look at other developed markets, you quickly realise that the Irish market is, is very much still in its infancy. If you take, say, North America, for example, uh, which is probably one of the most developed uh, PRS sectors globally, um, where you've got any number of landlords who have in excess of 50,000 units, and you have um, a percentage of the population of about 35% who are renting, which compares to, say, 20% here in Ireland. So there's quite a disparity there. Closer to home, if you look at the likes of, say, Germany uh, or the Netherlands, you have an even higher proportion of the uh, population who are renting, up as high as 40 to 50%. So again, Ireland is, is, is way behind some of those, I suppose, more um, established PRS markets. Um, and certainly our sense is against the backdrop here in Ireland of, um, I suppose, near full employment and more importantly, um, uh, population growth. The population is expected to grow here by 30% between now and 2050. We think the PRS sector has uh, a significant way to go. Uh, we think there's probably scope for at least 100,000 PRS units here, uh, but that could grow to 200,000 over the next 20 to 30 years, who knows. And at the same time, we've seen more of those smaller, single sort of buy-to-let type investors exit the market, which means there's probably more scope for, for the, the, the private piece, the professionally managed piece. What do you see as the challenges that, that could face reaching that potential? So in, in, in terms of the cha challenges that IRES sees, um, I suppose the principal one for us is uh, viability, uh, particularly in apartment construction. Um, we've seen considerable um, construction cost inflation over the past two years, and, and we don't see that stopping anytime soon. Um, so that's probably the, the single biggest uh, factor, I suppose, in terms of um, a, ch a challenge for the market. Um, that probably feeds into land in some respect because land um, feeds into the overall viability piece. I, I don't feel that there's a, a shortage of land per se, but I think the cost of land is obviously uh, an important factor. Um, other challenges are infrastructure. Um, I would say both site infrastructure, so that's actually uh, you know, your services, your electricity, your water and so on, but also um, amenity and transport and schools and availability of that for for people who are going to be living in these schemes. So um, you don't necessarily want to be building a thousand apartments in a, in a green field with no amenity, no retail, no shops, where, where people and families will be able to, uh, to shop and so on. So I think infrastructure is another important one. Planning, uh, I wouldn't see as a challenge as such. It's, a, it's obviously a process that has to, you have to go through. I think the new strategic housing development process is, uh, is a very good process. We've just brought our, or we're bringing our Rockbrook scheme in Sandyford through that process. Uh, as we speak, and we found it very good. Um, it just takes time. It's, it's something that you have to go through. Um, so I don't, as I said, I wouldn't see it as a challenge. It's just a process, and it takes time to go through that. Fun funding is something that the, the previous panel touched on. Um, obviously, there's some well-capitalised uh, large PLCs in the market um, for whom funding is particularly not, not particularly an issue. For some of the, the smaller house builder developers, um, who may have come through a NAMA process and they're trying to get themselves going again, funding may be more of a concern uh, and an issue, particularly when it comes to apartments, because unlike um, single-family homes, 
Um, once you start an apartment block, you really have to finish it out, whereas with the house, you can build 10 or 20 at a time and phase it and fund it as you go. Mm. Very good, very good. Fergus, can I turn to you on the operational side? The attractiveness in many ways of the, the BTR PRS model from the end user's perspective is based on services and amenities. As an operator, what types of services do you think have to be provided? And how do these differ from traditional services provided to residential schemes? And do you see any new services being provided or demanded? And will, will tenants pay for these? Hmm. Okay, so I think rather than getting into a conversation about how big is your gym and should you have a dining room and that kind of thing, I think you need, everyone needs to take a little bit of a step back from that currently at the moment. So there's a danger of replication and homogeneity of things that people are seeing elsewhere. I think anybody looking at a scheme uh, from the get-go needs to be looking at the fundamentals of it to see what works, what is potentially going to work. They need to have the PRS is a market. Okay, uh, it's no different than any product. There's a place in the market and there's a, a range across the market in terms of deliverables. Um, fundamentally, you need to understand who it is that is your customer. Are they sharers? Are they couples? Uh, are they downsizers? There's a whole range and gamut of age and demographic profile that you need to consider when you're actually building, bringing this product. Um, you need to understand what are the drivers behind people's decisions to where they live um, because they're very different across the board and across the de demographic profile of our, 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 our country. Um, is it transport? Is it schools? Is it proximity to uh, city? Is it culture? Is it, um, uh, is it work? Is it, you know, there's, a, there's a whole range of them. So you need to be thinking about those before you start thinking about what um, you're providing into it by way of services. You need to consider the scale. Scale is very important. Um, it's all very well to have aspirations to provide a whole range of services, but if it's going to eat into your net to gross leakage, then uh, you don't have an investable product. Um, the, uh, I think in the UK, they're working off an optimum of 250 to be providing um, a proper range of services, up to about 500 units to actually get to your bells and whistles standards. Um, and that's working off a, a quite a, a reasonably marketable net to gross leakage. Um, there is very little research that I can come across anyway in this country as to what are the services the tenants are actually looking for. We all understand what we think we want to deliver to them. Uh, the UK, which I suppose is our both, uh, most analogous market, uh, does have some research and there was a, 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 um, a poll done across the whole gamut of, I think it was 5,000 um, PRS residents in the UK as to what it is that they would like, what they would like to see, what it is that uh, is attractive to them and what they would pay for. Mm. Um, most interesting out of that when I was reading it was that very few of them were to do with anything other than the primary amenity. And by that I mean the primary amenity is in itself the apartment. Mm. Um, the things that were coming up, uh, and it varies across the different categories and it is segmented by that way, but uh, sharers for example, the biggest thing that they were looking for and the biggest um, uh, driver to consideration and the thing that they may potentially pay extra for was additional en-suites. Mm -hmm. So you have two couples um, with each with 
their own ensuites. Um, open plan living, again, you need to be considering whether that is suitable for your um, uh, your type of tenant. Again, if you have two couples in sharing situation, do you want an open plan living space where uh, both bedrooms are opening off the living space? Um, so you need to be considering exactly the product is and the product placing, no different than any other product. Um, the other things that were coming up in, uh, out of that survey, again, to the, to the primary amenity of the apartment is the, um, the generosity of the private amenity space, your balconies, your terraces, uh, the ergonomic functionality of the space and the spatial considerations. Um, after that, what seemed to be falling out in terms of uh, tiered considerations was the public realm, smart buildings. Um, smart buildings are no longer something that we might be thinking about they are achievable and this is these are buildings where you can operate everything off your phone from your heating to your access code into your building you can you, it's all there in front of us um, public realm is hugely important uh, I think the idea of a gated community in terms of what tenants are looking for is probably gone they're looking for permeable uh, locations they're looking for permeable locations with secure secure permeable locations with, with private um, private gardens within it. Um, I think the other thing then that's really coming to the fore at the moment and things that are probably coming down line in this country, they're in, in existence in other countries and it's, it's coming back to the smart buildings. Flexible tenures are really something that people are looking at and if you look at, um, uh, we have I think 30,000 a year at the moment in terms of inward migration. Not all of those are long stairs. There are people who are coming in and out of the market, particularly within the tech and the pharma sector. You need to be able to build flexible tenures to be able to cater for that. Um, no deposit renting is another one that's up flagging and coming down the road. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to quite work in this jurisdiction. Um, it may need to be financially regulated, I'm not sure. Um, uh, and ready-to-go apartments. So this is, again, coming back to the, some of the transient nature of some of our, our, our immigrants into the country is that you're really looking at something that some is ready to go. People aren't setting up utilities, they aren't doing that, they're, they're ready to flip it and turn it and get out and get in and as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. I think in terms of physical immunity space, my mic has gone there, um, we've all gotten very good at factoring in the life cycle and the life cycle costings of our buildings. I think the next step in the evolution of that, and particularly within the BTR PRS market, is to uh, create flexible immunity spaces, whether it's a gym or a dining room, I wouldn't get into to actual being prescriptive about what those would be, but that there is an inbuilt inflexibility within them. We've gotten good at the life cycle of the buildings, we now need to get good at making our buildings cater for the life cycle of our tenants. It's all our ambitions within the PRS and BTR to retain our tenants as long as we can. In order to do that, we have to be able to match uh, and, and run with their life cycle. Yeah, no, very interesting. I mean, it's, it's a very early stage, obviously, of the, the it's very juvenile, the yeah. yeah, but it's very interesting. This is where it's, it's going yeah. in the next few years. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Fergus. Wesley, could I turn to you? On the sell side, there's new capital and large institutions have been active on the buy side. Mm -hmm. You're, as a developer and seller of large-scale residential schemes, what is your experience in dealing, dealing with these new buyers? Uh, does it assist in deleveraging construction risk? Uh, does it add any additional complications? And have you, lesson, have you learnt lessons arising out of these transactions that you, you can take into the future? Um, 
think we've had a number of transactions on the on the PRS side and to date they've all been positive and particularly one of the panelists with me has been involved in one of those transactions so it's uh, we, we've had a, we've had a good experience um, I think the other thing is um, coming here today I was doing a little bit of research and I thought there was seven billion of capital in the market so I'm delighted to see there's another another billion floating around nowhere, so yeah. that's, uh, that we've got this morning so it just shows the the strength of capital that's in that market and I suppose that from the developer's perspective, what it's done is it's, it's brought an ex an, another dimension to the market in terms of an extra exit option for us. You know, we've built a sale, we've built a rent now, and I suppose ultimately from our perspective, it is a positive that's come into the market. I think from, from in terms of construction, um, ultimately the risk is, is, is resting with the developer. What the developer is doing is they're contracting and they're saying we're going to sell X to Y for a certain price within a prescribed time frame. Mm. And then ultimately, the onus is on the developer then to deliver that agreed specification within that time frame. Okay, if there's additional requirements that the particular investor has, that's an additional cost for that party, but ultimately the risk of cost rests with the developer. And that's something, again, when people talk about the different methodologies of sale, whether it's a forward fund or a forward purchase, again, the counterparty or the developer needs to consider that in terms of their exit. Um, ultimately, I suppose, the, the big piece that I see, the market talks about the institutional investor, but I think the market needs to talk about the institutional counterparty, because ultimately what the institutional investor is looking for now is they're looking for a party that's able to give them institutional warranties in terms of the collateral warranties from the design teams, from the subcontractors, from the developer if they're a self-built developer, and therefore as the market matures and more and more choice comes into the market, I believe that 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 investor is going to put much more onus and weight on that, that package that they're getting from their counterparty. So I think the market needs to recognize that, that, that responsibility and demand that I believe is going to come from the, the investor. Um, and I suppose that, that people may think, well, that's just documentation and paperwork, but certainly it is, it is far from that. And I think it's, it's recognizing that in advance and realizing the importance of that documentation from the outset. So, so ultimately that means from day one, in terms of when you're starting out with your scheme, it's making sure you have your design team adequately signed up with the appropriate documentation rather than going back retrospectively and trying to backfill. So I think that would be a key, a key component that, that I would see in the, in the market going forward. Um, and I suppose, you know, really the way, the, way, the way we would view it is that when we're starting out in a scheme or starting out in a particular site is trying to understand you know, what is that exit strategy, what could that exit strategy be? You know, are we looking at a build to sell scheme? Are we looking at a build to rent scheme? Are we looking at a hybrid? So it's making sure that you have the flexibility in your approach to your scheme to do that. So what you've seen to date is there's been a significant amount of Build to, build to sell design schemes that have been exited for build to rent. And I think over the next 24, certainly 18 months, we'll start to see bespoke schemes coming through the market. Um, and again, that really depends upon, and as Charles has alluded to, the locations of the sites. Are they in locations that are on, you know, have key infrastructure, not only transport, but amenities for the, the people that will reside in the homes? Um, you know, so from the developer's perspective, they need to have the optionality, but it needs to meet the, na the requirements of the investor as well. So I think mm -hmm. those, those constituent parts for us is sort of the, the thought process that, that we go through when we're, yeah. when we're assessing. And do you see a mixture of the two? <laughs> To sell, build to rent in certain schemes. Yeah, I think ultimately it's it's an it's inevitable. I think it's what the market will will, will do. And I think you know again when people talk about build build to rent, 
you know, there's a lot of focus, and rightly so, on apartments, but ultimately as this market matures, you know, it will move into, into and we've seen elements of it, but more and more towards housing as well. So, yes, in the city centre, in the docks, it will be, you know, apartment-driven. Again, on the commuter belts, on transport nodes, it, it will be apartments, but it, it is conceivably housing. So I think, yes, because of the scale of schemes, um, you will see a, a multitude, and therefore that's why the management is important, that you know, the integration of the, the tenant with the owner-occupier within the schemes, because ultimately, from our perspective, these schemes are going to last for a long period of time, and we need to be able to go up to them and say, well, actually, we did that, and we're proud of that scheme. Mm. So that's important. We're not just exiting and going, well, that's someone else's problem. Yeah, very good, very good. Felix, can I turn to you as a, a newer entrant to the buy side and an active entrant based on yesterday's papers alone? Uh, what are your views of the 15-year hold uh, requirement under BTR? Uh, how are you and your investors dealing with this? And do you believe that this will have an effect on valuations and, and lenders' appetite? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I'll answer your question uh, straight. We, we are dealing with it, actually, yeah. And my own view, and certainly the view of Urbio uh, and our investors, is that um, it will have no impact on valuation, should have no impact on valuation, and as a consequence, it ought to have no impact on lending. And I think, if anything, the reality of that 15-year covenant is that it demonstrates a long-term commitment of both the, the developer and the investor in particular to the scheme. Mm. And when you look behind that, I think that the commercial reality of uh, a tenanted uh, multifamily scheme is that once the scheme is, is occupied and fully tenanted, um, the prospect of that scheme being becoming vacant and disposed of on a breakup basis, you know, a number of years down the road, is actually remarkably remote, you know, commercially. I think that's the the reality of it, mm. and. Unless, you know, in some very extreme set of circumstances, that the investor was to get vacant possession of the entire scheme, I think there are very few um, professional investors who would be interested in having a partially broken-up scheme with a number of, uh, of, of individually owned units pepper-potted throughout a, an otherwise um, PRS scheme. Yes. So when, when you put all of that together, I think the uh, impact, there won't actually be any impact and ultimately valuers are looking at the, uh, the underlying investment income, uh, how appropriate and sustainable that is and that's what uh, drives value in the end of the day and certainly it's not something that we would be concerned about and I'm sure there, there are a few valuers in the room who, would, who might well have an opinion on it but yes. that, that's certainly our analysis of it and I don't detect uh, anything emerging from uh, investors generally any any different uh, to that. Charles, would you have any other views? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with what Felix has said. Uh, I, would, I would say that IRES doesn't have any specific actual build-to-rent schemes in its portfolio, and we haven't designated any of our planning applications as specific build-to-rent under the, the planning guidance. But I think um, I think I would agree with Felix. I think the, the build-to-rent model is, a, is an asset class in its own right and it's highly unlikely that um, if a build-to-rent building is built that it's ever going to be broken up and sold off as individual apartments into mm -hmm. the future. Yeah. So I I in our view, the 15-year covenant shouldn't have uh, an impact on valuation. Good, good. Okay, well, I think we're at that stage. We, we might invite some questions from the audience. Uh, there are roving mics. Our events team are running around. So if you have any questions for our panel, here, here they are. Sorry. 
we've one question from the floor here. It's a question for Felix and Charles. Should build-to-rent providers provide a proportion, sorry, pro provide a portion of their rental housing as cost rental and target affordability for moderate income households? Sure. Yeah, I think it is a, an interesting question and obviously one that's been touched on earlier by both the Minister and indeed by, by John and others. Um, I think the challenge with the cost rental model is the actual evolution of the model and how it works. I think fundamentally uh, there's no reason why uh, investors, institutional investors wouldn't be attracted to a cost rental model, uh, but we've mm -hmm. yet to find to develop that model and to deploy it. And I think as it emerges, uh, and particularly on, on larger mixed tenure schemes, I think there's every prospect that a cost rental model uh, will emerge and that it will be attractive to institutions. I see no reason why institutions uh, wouldn't be attracted to it. Good. Charles? Yeah, I, I would say from the IRS perspective, um, when we look at, at larger schemes, we, we believe larger schemes should have a, a mix of occupiers within the scheme. Mm -hmm. So you should have your, your private rental element um, but you'll also have your traditional sort of part five element and you could also have a, you know, a, a cost rental element to that as well. Mm. So we're, we're, and sorry, and also you know, an element of owner occupied units within a scheme as well. So yes. we're, we're very happy with a kind of an overall mix uh, within, a, within a larger scheme. Good, good, okay, thank you. Sorry, someone just over there. How are you doing? Uh, just to, I suppose we have a good spectrum on the panel there at the moment. Uh, I'd just be interested to get your opinions on the private apartment buyer, uh, with PRS being so strong in the market there at the moment. I know the lads touched upon it that the PRS don't really look for individual units pottered around owned by the private person. But uh, housing is a different animal altogether. People can aim for the house, but in the interim, to get an apartment, the affordability of it particularly with land values gone so high, anyone trying to purchase land at present and look at the viability side with the building costs, it's pretty much impossible without the PRS scheme. So I'd just like to get your view on that. Maybe from Glenway. Are you selling to anyone individually? <laughs> Probably not. No pressure. <laughs> I like the maybe from there at the end. Um, I think the I think the important thing is to stand back from it, and I think there was a comment made by Charles, someone on uh, Michael, on just on, on land values, and ultimately, I think in terms of the developer assessing the lands that are on the market at the moment, I think people have to stand back and look at it on a number of bases. Obviously, one, if you go down the traditional build to sell route, it has a price point. If you go to the build to sell, build to rent, and and the hybrid, what is the option? So I suppose. As a developer, you can't just target one sole exit option and say, well, that's going to be my exit option because you have to have a contingency plan. So I think ultimately what, what maybe is starting to happen in the market at the moment is there's, a, there's certainly a lot of constituent parts of the market probably targeting the build to rent exit at the moment. You know, and that's no different if we go back and I've alluded to this, I'm sorry if some people in meetings have heard it from me, but you go back to there's certain discount retailers that were in the market 10 years ago and everyone thought they were going to sell to them. Before that it was primary healthcare and so on. So I think that people need to look at the, the sector and say, right, who's doing what in here? What volume is coming in my particular area? Where do I come in the food chain there? Am I going to be first up or am I going to be five or six down the line? So it's understanding your delivery into the market. So you know, certainly from our perspective, it's an attractive exit, but ultimately it can't be a sole exit into the market. And I think people need to understand that and have a, a contingency plan for that. 
Um, and just your question in terms of you know, the, the individual purchaser, like we are building and developing schemes that are aimed at the, in, these are apartment schemes, at the uh, build to sell market. Um, you know, we, we launched one last weekend. So, you know, from our perspective, we don't see it as the sole exit into the market in terms of build to rent. There are other exits. And, you know, again, it depends very much on the location of the particular asset, the price point of the particular asset, you know, the demographic that you're, you're targeting in terms, and again, that's linked to, to location. Hi, this is uh, probably one for Charles. Um, would you be optimistic about the potential for growth um, of PR, PRS schemes outside of those prime locations uh, in the Dublin area? Uh, yes, we would. Um, so IRES, the IRES existing portfolio is pretty much dominate kind of around and within the M50. But last year, we, we started to look outside of the M50 and we, we have acquired some houses from Glenvay up in Donabate and up in Balbriggan, which we would kind of call commuter areas, um, areas where um, houses or apartments are located close to good transport nodes. So people can travel into the city centre in, in less than 50 minutes, either by, by rail or by, by road. Um, but also they may not actually need to be coming to the city centre, they might be working at Dublin Airport or indeed they might be heading up north to work up there. But also those areas are areas which are established, um, there's good amenity. If you go to Balbriggan for example, I don't think I've ever seen so many schools built in an area over the last 10 years. Um, there is good infrastructure already there. So in both those areas we've, we've invested in houses rather than apartments. Uh, we think they'll, uh, they'll be more attractive to, to families, possibly people with young, young children. Um, and we think they'll work very well for us. Um, IRES's prime focus is on apartments, but we're very happy to look at, at, at some element of houses. And as I say, that, that, that does reach into the commuter areas uh, of Dublin. Outside of Dublin, um, we think that Cork presents a good opportunity. There's obviously a growing population in Cork. There's a good employment base down in Cork. Unfortunately, in Cork, um, unlike Dublin, there hasn't been um, uh, the, the opportunity to buy completed blocks through, through the sales by, by NAMA and so on. Um, there's been a couple of uh, schemes that have been sold in the last two years, but really there's a, a limited amount of completed stock in Cork. So I think the focus in the regions is probably more likely to be on the development side. But again, from the IRES perspective, we'd be very comfortable with some sort of forward purchase or forward commitment in respect of apartments and or houses in, in Cork, for example. Felix, would you like to? Are you happy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just to that Charles' point, I mean, one of the things in, in those uh, suburban locations, I think it's, there are a couple of issues. Uh, Obviously, the employment potential, and I think some people sometimes forget. I mean, uh, Charles has referenced the airport. You know that there are very significant employment hinterlands uh, to be served, and not everybody is commuting or wants to commute to the city centre. The connectivity is important, but there's you know, very significant hinterlands there uh, with large employment bases uh, that, that are clearly attractive. And um, as Charles says, certainly locations like. Uh, Cork, Limerick, Galway uh, will become increasingly attractive. I think yes. Cork is kind of the, the success story at the moment, more you know in terms of the, the wider level of economic activity there. Uh, so clearly, it, it will follow that that you know the demand exists and the market will respond to that. So we would certainly see opportunity in in larger provincial locations. Great. Great. I have a question here from the app. I said, 
Do the real estate companies on the panel expect to do any co-living developments? Um, not in the, in the immediate term, although I'd be amazed if along the way we didn't as we build our portfolio. And I think the whole co-living point, while it's topical, uh, and again the Minister referenced this, I think it needs to be put in context. Ultimately, it probably represents a very tiny proportion of the PR, wider PRS market and uh, serves a very particular need that um, younger people, generally speaking, are attracted to. So I see it's a natural evolution. I think it's a, it's a good product potentially, um, but I don't think it will be a very significant uh, component of, of any you know, um, portfolio, but it, it may well be a, a small and important component. But there's clear, clearly an opportunity there. Yes. Uh, and similar for IRES, we're, we're not currently looking at any co-living um, opportunities. I think it's a very interesting segment of the market. It's obviously a new emerging uh, sector, um, but it's not something that we're currently planning in any of our um, proposed development schemes. Okay, good. I, I have one question here. I've got a, it's a broad question. What is the role of the BTR PRS sector in the housing crisis? It's topical given the Minister's comments. Yeah, I, I think it's central to it actually. I mean there's, there's a whole dynamic going on there that's uh, you know probably most of the people in this room have a good understanding of it. Um, but if, if you look more broadly, that's what ha what's happening in, in the private rental market. Um, we're all familiar with the wider uh, demographic trends, uh, the increase in, in, in net migration, uh, the particular demand arising out of that, certainly in the greater Dublin area, for additional residential units, both um, uh, to buy and to rent. And in relation to the PRS sector in particular, on, on the... I mean, you have to look at what's the source, what's, what are the likely sources of rental accommodation, and in broad terms, th th there are three sources. There's the government, um, there's private investors, and there's institutional investors. And clearly, the government uh, has its hands more than full you know, de dealing with um, the social housing agenda in particular, so it's, it's hard to see, certainly in the short and medium term, that other than through some affordable rental initiative that the government will have any material impact on, on delivery. Um, in terms of, the, of private investors, I mean, it remains the case that significantly for a combination of reasons that, again, most people are all familiar with, and not least to do with, with personal indebtedness and other uh, related issues, you know, there are still far more uh, private investors exiting uh, the rental sector than there are entering it. So you're not likely to see um, any increased contribution, or any significant increased contribution from private investors in, in the short and medium term. So as a consequence, if the uh, required volumes are to be delivered, I think you know, substantially the um, institutional investment community will be a central part in, in funding and enabling the delivery of those units. So in terms of dealing with the wider housing challenge, I think in the uh, uh, not to repeat myself, but in the medium and longer term, uh, a stable, well-managed, well-funded um, institutional investment sector is absolutely at, at the heart of that solution. Yeah, and I think just the funding bit there is probably the key piece because, you know, I know there was reference to, to certain cohorts of the market maybe don't require the funding, but from others that do require <coughs> the ability to, to exit to an institutional investor and use the funding. To, to do that is key and that ultimately will speed up the delivery and that's of benefit to, to everybody. I think, sorry, I'm not 
a developer, and I'm not an investor, but it would seem to me, um, so the BTO product is attractive to investors because they're looking for their returns over decades, as opposed to, I suppose, house building, which is um, historically can be stop-start. We've all seen where that's been um, over the last decade or so. So where investors are looking for returns over decades, that presumably allows for a smoothing of delivery into the market through, uh, through cycles, mm. yeah. which is very advantageous. Which is good, yeah. yeah. Okay, very good. I have one final question, again, from the app. Any sign of dedicated step-down accommodation for older people? That's the question. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Would anyone like to take that? I, I think there are some sorry. early signs of that, some early signs, but not yeah. at any significant scale yet. Okay. Uh, but it goes back, I think, a point maybe one of the, the, the uh, persons from the audience made around, you know, the uh, individual buy to sell. I think in all of this, there's a there's a, a shift in both tenure and and demographics, which you know suggests that there's unquestionably increasing demand for those types of facilities. Um, and certainly, we have seen, uh, uh, I'm sure others have, you know, a couple of such projects begin to emerge. But uh, um, you have to expect that that will increase over time. Thank you. I think we're under pressure time wise. So before handing you back to Vincent, I'd like on behalf of all of you to, to thank our panellists for their, for their great contribution. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thanks, Charles, um, Fergus, Wesley and Felix. Um, I was reluctant to get off my chair there as the older people were mentioned because um, <laughs> I feel myself rapidly entering that category. Uh, that was fascinating, I thought, just particularly the, the, the scale of which the institutional or commercial private rental sector could become up to 200,000 units perhaps over time uh, and the fact that it could be in certain circumstances housing as well as apartments. It's a, a fascinating glimpse into the future. Um, okay, you're all welcome back. Hopefully. Uh, energized by the caffeine and the networking and uh, thanks for coming back at 5 to 11 um, shows that I have as much authority in my professional life as I do at home <laughs> I know it's all it's important to let off steam and to chat that's uh, that's important as well I know straight into our third panel and uh, we have everybody in place so I'll hand straight over on the topic of planning development and pacemaking to our moderator for this session Vanessa Byrne co-head real estate Mason Hayson Kern okay Good morning, and just to introduce my panel first of all this morning, so I have Ian Lydon, Managing Director with Heinz. Ian is uh, leading on the master planning of, uh, and the infrastructure rollout for the Cherrywood project. Um, so then we have Stephen Little, Planning Consultant. Stephen has over 28 years um, experience in private town planning, and he's been involved in some major infrastructure projects like the Lewis Project with the RPA, and he's particular experience in urban regeneration in, uh, with conservation issues in city sites. Um, then we have Connell. Connell Boland is a planning and environmental consultant and a lecturer with TU. And he's also a former deputy chairperson of Onboard Planola. So that's part of his USP today. Um, then we have Connor Skehan. Connor is a qualified architect and landscape architect. Uh, he also is a lecturer in TU and a former uh, chair of the housing agency. And some of you may know him as a columnist with the Sunday Independent. And then my uh, partner in Mason Hayes and Curran, Deirdre Nagel, is our fifth panellist. Deirdre is head of our planning and environmental team. She practices contentious and non-contentious planning law, and she formerly worked with Airgrid, so she has experience of planning major infrastructural projects. So our theme for this panel is urban development, planning, and placemaking. 
So we know that the population of Ireland is to grow by over a million um, by 2040. And when we couple this with the global phenomena of urbanisation and the move to cities, clearly that's going to bring pressure um, to the built environment within our cities uh, and a corresponding uh, need to improve infrastructure to support those populations. So how will we balance this need for urban development with things like local concerns, with the national planning strategy, and with the need to create imaginative urban spaces for us to work and live in? So turning to you first, Ian, um, as the, you're the developer in this panel, and I think your uh, perspective is particularly interesting. We heard a couple of the uh, previous panels touch on the issue of infrastructure. You know, we, um, you know, there's bigger infrastructure in terms of transport and so on, but actual site infrastructure. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the challenges that you faced um, in Cherrywood, um, with a particular emphasis on the infrastructure side? Yeah, the, the big challenge we had out in Cherrywood, there was a, a, quite a substantial amount of infrastructure had to go in up front. Um, and that's a, that's a challenge across a lot of different sites in, in, in Dublin. And to, um, that, that upfront infrastructure obviously is very, very expensive. And the one solution is to put it in on top of the development, but a lot of the time that, that makes it unviable. So we, we've had to look at other solutions in relation to it. So the, thankfully the government have got involved and they've put in schemes like LIHAF and URDF, which have been helpful. Um, however, there are other, we have to look at other solutions as well. Uh, one that we've looked at in Cherrywood, which, um, which, which is working, quite well is um, in relation to getting a section 48 levy offset or a portion of that to help fund the infrastructure. Again, that doesn't solve it, um, but um, there are another solution that we're, 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 we've presented to the government and ho ho hopefully it comes into play, but um, it's worked on a lot of our other sites outside Ireland. It's, it's whereby the local authority and the developer partners together, the local authority would get a loan out for that upfront infrastructure. ISAF would be a very good um, um, candidate for that. And um, the loan is taken out, the local authority and the developer puts the infrastructure in place and then that's paid back by a portion of the future local property tax that is uh, accrued on that particular site. That we've, we've done that in a number of different countries. Now it is a challenge, there's lots of hurdles to overcome to come that, but we, we do think that is an opportunity here that, that could be imp implemented in Ireland to help unlock a lot of the sites. Okay, and that's in particular in relation to site-specific infrastructure like water and sewage and it's, utilities? Yeah, it's the, it's the roads, the junction upgrades, the traffic lights, all the utilities, the whole thing to be able to unlock that particular site, you know, so, it's, so that it can be open for development. And in terms of utility providers, because I think some, something that you know, we're all familiar with is seeing all the roads dug up everywhere we go and it's constant, you know, it's opened one week and then it's closed up and then it's opened again. What kind of experience or what kind of suggestions would you have in that regard? Is there any utility companies reps in the, in the room before I answer this? But, uh, um, so, the, yeah, like on, on, I think any developer here in the room will, will have come across that uh, we, we all have challenges uh, liaising with the, with the utility companies. Um, so what we have found across the seven or eight that we've been working with, um, some of them have um, very good procedures in place where they've actually got a business development team in, in, um, implemented where we liaise directly with them and they manage the whole process internally. Uh, and that has worked very well. Um, however, some of the other utility companies don't have that in place and we end up liaising directly with the technical teams and 
a lot of the a lot of the utility companies their their main aim is to look at their infrastructure um, plans that they've got in place for year for the next five years or so and the sort of ten not all of them but a lot of them do tend to um, see developers as, as a bit of a, a hassle or you know just something that they've they've got to just sort of bolt on to their, their their day job but I think if they if they did put the business development team in place I think that that would that, that would solve a lot of problems. Come back to your uh, earlier comment about digging up the roads, and nine months later, another guy comes in and digs up the roads. Um, obviously, it's very frustrating for um, all the retailers adjacent there, people living there. And there has to be some way that the local authority and the utility companies have to better align themselves. So, if a utility company is putting in a substantial piece of infrastructure, they, they just have to work with the local authority and, and the other utility companies and, and align themselves that bit better so that if one guy's going in, then the other, the other two or three can go in at the same time. Now, it is a challenge because they all have their own infrastructure plans, but like if, if, if they can work together, it, it, it'll end up that the, the whole thing will, will, will be a lot easier for, for, for everybody. And the, the, all that infrastructure will, will, will have gone into place to, be, to, to increase the capacity across the particular area. And bringing the conversation on infrastructure up to the kind of larger infrastructure projects, Connell, in terms of transport infrastructure in particular, one of the things that we touched upon when we had a chat before today was the national planning framework and whether Project Ireland 2040 is ambitious enough in that regard. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, the one word that hasn't been mentioned this morning yet is, is climate change. And uh, I think one of the, the biggest challenges we have is to improve the efficiency of the transport sector and to move away from the private car towards public transport, walking and cycling modes. So there's a massive, we're starting from a very low base. Dublin has gone a certain, long, certain way along the way. Um, if you go to Cork, Limerick, Galway, starting from a very low base. So one of, the, one of the key things for releasing the potential of any site is whether it's serviced. We used to think traditionally that meant water and wastewater and that still is very important and Irish water have a very big role to play, but increasingly it's going to be, are you serviced by public transport, and is it high capacity public transport? So instead of individual sites plugging in and then maybe hoping a transportation solution might come sooner or later, we have to turn that around now and start saying, well, the transportation solution is going to be the following. That will provide a corridor upon which we can develop and develop at higher density. So that whole transport-oriented development uh, planning and planning and land use and matching that up better is one of the biggest challenges that I see coming down the road. Um, Do we need more ambition in that regard then? Yeah, certainly one of the, one of the latest pieces of news on transport was in the Cork, there's a draft transport mm -hmm. plan uh, issued in the last couple of weeks. And whereas up to now, they were talking only in terms of buses and improving bus capacity. Finally, there's talk of a, of a light rail solution potentially in Cork. Um, I think we need more ambition on, on public transport. We need to see light rail being considered in the other cities. If you look at France, there are 25 cities with light rail, some of which are as small as um, <coughs> Avignon or Aubagne. Yeah. So we know about Nice and Nantes and Strasbourg, but cities of 50 to 100,000 population have gone that route and have used light rail as a, as a regeneration tool and a signature and a statement of ambition. Mm -hmm. So really, if we're to be more ambitious on climate change, I think we need to be a lot more ambitious on, on delivering higher quality public transport when you have it, as you have in Cherrywood, yeah. then your development potential opens up. Um, just another, another thing, uh, Poolbeg, most yeah. recently approved SDZ, that's going to have a, a light rail service, hopefully from day one, but it's, it's hardwired into the planning scheme. Uh, we saw the same in Adamstown and uh, in Clonbarris, there'll be high uh, capacity rail connections. So 
we have to really continue to emphasize that and investment on infrastructure is going to be central to you know, building the compact cities of, of the future. Stephen, you mentioned um, strategic development zones there, Connell, but um, SDZs, I think, you know, are, you know, are, they've been a key point in improving access to sites, development, infrastructure. You've been involved um, in some projects that have had significant SDZ uh, elements to them. Um, are they striking the right balance? What's your view? Um, I think, um, based on the topic, I think uh, one of the comments that I would have is that plan-led uh, development does tend to result in a far better solution. Um, Adamstown came first, uh, and a lot of even the local area plans that we see around uh, the country are founded on the kind of broad principles that were originally set out there, um, which is largely to do with infrastructure-led, ensuring that the delivery of social, physical infrastructure, so schools as well as uh, the roads and the trains and the Lewises or the buses are tied to the delivery of units. Um, I think uh, they have resulted in better neighbourhoods for people. Um, I think there are inherent challenges, obviously, in terms of ensuring that the finances are put in place for that infrastructure, and that does cause uh, conflicts with the phasing. Um, I think it's worth noting that um, we would have had a, a general conversation along this in the past, but obviously we've gone through a fairly tumultuous time in the last 10 years, um, and there has been need for flexibility uh, within that plan-making process. Uh, and in fairness to the government, they've stepped up and made some amendments to the Planning Act that enable uh, reasonably non-material changes to plans to occur in a fairly speedy process. Uh, in the past, you would have gone through years and years of a process where now it can happen reasonably quickly. And in fairness, that has occurred. It's occurred in the context of Adamstown. It's occurred in the context of Cherrywood, to name but two. Um, so again, I think that's probably a positive reflection on the fact that uh, things are, there's a recognition that things need to modify somewhat. Um, I, I, my personal concern would be that we don't modify things too much. I think if the plan is sound, which it was probably deemed to be at the time, uh, we can't deviate too radically from it, uh, particularly, uh, as you said, the, the public transport side of things in particular. There needs to be uh, that commitment from our friends in government to deliver. Uh, and we often hear this thing up from uh, certainly the planning side of things that they don't want it to be business as usual. Um, and as for those of us who've been around for a while, one of the business as usual pieces is that there's non, not enough investment in infrastructure. So we absolutely need our government to deliver on the infrastructure that they've committed to in the National Development Plan. They've set out that plan, which is a very useful guide for everybody. They've committed to infrastructure spend from the period 2018 to 2027. We need, absolutely need, as a minimum, whether it's not ambitious or not, we need, a, as a minimum, that investment to be taking place. And um, to bring you in, Connor, uh, on the concept of placemaking, because part of SDZs is, I suppose, to kind of have a more thought through plan in terms of uh, planning infrastructure and planning development. What does placemaking mean to you? Um, I think, well, to, to follow on, on Stephen's point and Ian's experience, uh, that SDZs have had an unintended consequence of. Uh, creating better plans because there's more joined up thinking at an earlier stage and more advanced delivery of the things that are so painfully in for you, uh, the uh, open spaces and, uh, and the provision of transport. Um, 
However, and this is, I mean, you're all here under the title from MCH of uh, opportunities and opening doors. The reality is that placemaking is a separate activity from planning and development. And with no disrespect to anybody in the room, people involved in planning and development are people who are transients. You're only there for the making of the project. But the actual people who will occupy it and all of the activities and needs and wants they'll have, that's what the placemaking is. That's where that happens. There are huge opportunities out there for many of the specialisations in this room that are not even touched on in Ireland yet. And they're the mundane things of maintenance and management, they're the complex things of insurance and title and all of those, what I call the hidden hands. And the hidden hands are the things that both create and sustain the places that have distinctiveness and quality and all the things we're trying to achieve. And I think that that's where a lot of you in this room, particularly the younger of you, uh, is where there are whole careers ahead of you. Oak trees spend 95% of their energy sustaining themselves, just standing there, and very little on growth when they're mature. And I think there's huge opportunities for this whole sector once they start to realise that planning and development is only the start of a process, and that the majority of you will have long left the site when the real placemaking begins. That's a long answer yeah. to a short okay. question, Very Vanessa. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, Topic number three that we had touched upon amongst ourselves was the um, subject of height within um, all of our cities. Um, Deirdre, I might open with you on this one because there's obviously there was a recent case on this. Um, you might touch upon the detail of that and then we might just come back through the panel in terms of their individual views on um, you know, how much, what, you know, how do we feel about height? We, you know, we, we understand that we need to increase you know, density and so on. But if you could maybe touch on the, the legal issue that arose. Sure, so um, this was a recent judgment um, of the High Court. Um, it's been widely reported. Um, essentially, uh, it was a, a company um, uh, which uh, was looking to for an interpretation in relation to a planning application in, the, um, in an STZ and whether or not the building heights and urban development guidelines applied. Um, to the consideration by Dublin City Council to, to the, both of those applications. And uh, ultimately what the court held was that the guidelines did not apply and to consideration um, of the planning authority within the STZ. And the only way um, the STZ could be amended was to, or, sorry, rather the only way there could be an increase in height or the decision would be by reference to the scheme. So if in the event that there was, um, the, the local authority was minded to increase the height in, in any particular SDZ, it would have to go through the amendment process. And I think it's highly likely that will be considered a material alteration. Um, and you're looking then for that amendment process 12 to 18 months to go through, essentially. Okay. Height is the great <laughs> will of the wisp. And, uh, the, the problem with height is that taken in isolation on a site-by-site site basis, which was the es essence of that case, arguments can always be made for more height. And height on a single site basis tends to develop, tends to benefit the few. Yes. Height, when considered in a larger scheme, means I should say, by all means, have 25 stories. Show me where the park that you're providing is. 
You can't take height and density in isolation from the totality. Ian has felt the lash of a proportionate provision of open space provision to give you the densities that will give the fantastic yields on a site-by-site -site basis. So questions of height are inevitably made by people who seek to benefit just for themselves on a particular site. The totality, the city at large, on the basis of experience everywhere in the world, about eight stories, eight to ten stories, consistently applied over a whole city, provides the incredible densities that are needed to make cities vibrant places. And so all of you, beware of being sucked into the debate about height because people will ask you to look at a particular site. Throw the focus back to a wider issue and you get a different thing saying, Colonel, where's your park? You know, and uh, then you can have your height if you give us the park. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, do you want to comment on your views on height? I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, from a developer perspective, we, we would all want uh, height. but. Um, it just has to be done the right way, though. So, you know, like, if you look at Dublin City itself, if, if you know, strategies are put in place where areas can be allocated where, or be identified where, or height can go, like in and around where the transport hubs are, um, our view, would, that would be a perfect position. Um, but we, from our perspective, we, we would, we really do feel that it does need to be opened up in, in, in Dublin or else the, the spread of Dublin is still going to continue. Um, but from a, from a design perspective, it, it, it has to be done right. It has to be the correct architecture. It has to have the, 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 the correct um, facilities. Um, and you do have to look at the daylight sunlight. You have to look at the microclimate that, that arises when, when the buildings are, are installed. But um, I, I think collectively, I, I don't think we have any choice here in Dublin and in, in the other cities. We, we are going to have to grasp this and we're going to have to implement it. Stephen, we talked about height in one of our um, previous discussions of just amongst <coughs> ourselves in terms of how do we help local authorities have a coherent strategy around height? Yeah, well, I suppose um, back in the day uh, when density started to become an issue, um, without best not to name the people who did it, but there was a study done for the department and what the, the study said was, look, uh, sorry, this is slightly going off, off piste as it were, but I'll come back. Um, the study said, you know, we need densities. We need proper densities. We can't afford to be at eight to the acre, back, back old money. Um, and we need to be doing, you know, where did we come to? We got to 12, 14 to 20 to the acre old money. And that meant that, and the proposal was in that study, was that all of our suburbs should be potentially re-looked at, revisited, and density is increased. That's not going to happen. If or if it is, it's going to happen very piecemeal and not in a coherent way. So we are left with the scenario of we have a very limited amount of land left to develop, uh, wherever we're talking about, be it Galway, Cork, Dublin. Um, so we have to maximize that to the best that we possibly can, because frankly, after that's gone, and it will come and go, it may not be in our lifetime, but it will come and go, what happens then? So somebody has to do that step back point, as Connor has said, and go, big picture, what's the story? Dublin City Council took that view back in 99, 2000, and they employed a firm called DEGW, and DEGW did a study of where in Dublin City would be the best location, and as Ian said, it's identified key nodal points, public transport, all the locations, probably people may or may not be aware of it, it's not, the point isn't uh, what, what, where they said, it's more that they, there is that broad approach of where is height appropriate. Um, and there's probably not many people in the room who disagree with that. And th those are where the tallest elements should be. What we're really down now talking about is 
how tall is tall and how high is high. And we'll all have our own views. My personal view is, I think, uh, and I think the City Council probably have it pretty much on the money, uh, is that they say where there is to be tall buildings, it has to be of exceptional design quality. And I think for, for uh, sorry, I should say, I am a Dubliner, I've always been a Dubliner. So for my city, I, the idea of having exceptional buildings in the skyline is, is something I'm actually excited about. Uh, I think we have a wonderful old city. I think Galway's got wonderful old elements, so does Limerick, so does Cork, they all have their historic elements. But they can all cater for a contemporary tall building. Uh, some of the buildings now that have been granted in Cork, if anybody's seen those, they look fantastic. I look forward to seeing what they're going to look like actually on the ground. So I'm definitely in favour of it. Uh, height, uh, it's interesting, you know, we can all have that discussion about where does the rest of development go and how high should the rest of that development be. Uh, but I would guess that in 10 years' time, uh, we'll have people saying, well, where we said five stories was a good height, that maybe wasn't enough. Uh, so I think there is scope to consider uh, modest increases in heights. I, I mean, broadly speaking, I tend to agree with Connor. The kind of heights we should be talking about are in that six to ten bracket. I don't think we should be having heights significantly above that, unless they are in those key locations. Um, and you know, as the city does expand and the Cork, Cork Glimmerick, Goy, etc., they all need to consider that. Uh, we have a scenario now, for better or for worse, we have a government policy that we all know, SP, Special Planning Policy Requirement Three, which says. It does set up the yep. scenario that Connor has indicated. So we have a situation where if there's an appropriate location identified and it can be justified, then that can be granted permission. So that's where we are. We're in this odd interregnum between yep. where the strategies come through. Um, but it's only one hand clapping. So we haven't heard the full thing of the density and the provision of open space and public realm. Yeah. Can't have height without, without context. Yeah. Have to have it. The, strate the strategic housing uh, fast-track planning um, um, regs that have come through in the last while I think have been a success uh, would be the impression that I think I get from the other panels that we've heard this morning. Connor, how do you feel about that? Do you think they have been a success? This is the, the, the regulations which allow for fast-track planning for over 100. Yeah, uh, I think houses. the people that ask are the developers in the room, by and large, I, I think they're turning out to be slower than most people expected. Uh, not trying to flatter Connell sitting beside me here, but the conventional planning system has the ability to deliver the goods in a much faster way, in my experience, because all of the requirements of SEA and appropriate assessment and environmental impact assessment and flood risk assessment have to be done no matter how fast or slow your process is, and those things are uh, inescapable, as Deirdre will tell us, uh, legal requirements to deal with all of that. So the promise, the, the, the shiny, of saying we'll do something for you very quickly is full of exceptions and as practitioners like Stephen will tell you and Ian, in reality the fast is only relative to where you get to after you've done all those studies. So my personal opinion is that things like SDZs and fast track uh, have not and will never deliver the goods that would be any faster than the conventional system. Okay. Short answer. I think I'd, I'd have to come in there and disagree with my, my former lecturer and, and mentor. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I, when, when the SHD process, strategic housing development process was introduced, mm. um, obviously it was a big change from Borbton Ola because there was mandatory time limits on both the pre-application and the application phase. So um, we had to sit down and figure out how we were going to deliver on that. Um, but to be fair to the department, they did give extra resources. Um, we got 10 extra planners and um, additional board members. And certainly have delivered, the Borbton Ola has, has delivered on time 
on both the pre-app and the application stage, it hasn't all been grants of permission, and I think maybe 20 to 30% are refusals, but at least they're refusals delivered in a short space of time. And if you look at reasons for refusal, they tend to have been flagged at the pre-application process. Mm -hmm. I think where it has been successful is in bringing people together around a single table. Uh, so you have Onboard Planola, you have the developer, and you have the local authority in the same room at the pre-application phase, which is a new departure. And it seems to have helped focus the minds at local authority level, uh, as opposed to maybe endless pre-applications where you talk to the heritage officer, and then you talk to the parks department, and then you talk to the architects. And it's not clear that they're all talking to each other or that they're prioritizing your case. So now the pre-application process is more focused. And uh, it seems to be the developers, to be fair, are putting good teams together, good urban design, architecture, landscaping. Um, and I think the impression we're getting is that it's, um, it's, it's certainly been delivered on time. And the quality of design seems to, have, you know, seems to be good. So um, I suppose from within, like I'm not, I've left the board six months ago, but from within the board, I think there's, there's a sense that it is working. You touched on the issue there of resourcing um, in terms of you, you've got additional resource to kind of help that through. Um, the, you know, the, the decision makers within the local authorities and within Onboard Planola are working within quite a confined regulatory regime. Um, and, you know, and then we have this issue around resourcing because if we have this you know, flood of development kind of coming at them, you know, is, is there an issue around manpower, around expertise? Maybe let Stephen yeah, yeah. come in there. From, a, from our perspective of what we see on the ground, there absolutely is, yeah. Um, I mean, for those of you who maybe don't know, um, one of the recent amendments in the Planning and Development Act is that there will soon be an eight-week mandatory limit to deal with compliance. Um, and at the moment, there frankly isn't the resources in the local authorities to do that. There just, there's not a chance that they could actually address that in that time frame. Um, there is, which is, we live in an ever-changing planning world, which is the other point. So they're continually having to be upskilled and up-resourced and uh, on board Planola uh, every now and then takes a, a swipe of intelligent staff from the local authority sector. So there is definitely a deficit of people within the staff uh, sector there. Uh, they've gone through a period of having a, a block on employment, so that's an issue. Um, so. Getting back to the other point, uh, what the SHD process is doing, uh, which whether this is good or bad is, is another day's discussion, but it, it's enabling developers to get into the planning authority and then get to the board and have the discussion with the board and not the planning authority because there isn't the time and the resourcing there to have that. I'm being very broad brushed there. Some local authorities are clearly not in the same place as that, um, but that is what is happening. Um, the uptake of SHDs was reasonably slow to get going. Um, the discussion we were in with the board there last week, and we're told that in the month of May alone they had 22 pre-app yeah. applications. So the numbers are absolutely cranking up big time. Uh, personal thing would be <coughs> we need 24,000 or so homes nationally here, or 35 depending on who you talk to. The numbers that are going through the strategic housing system are way too small. We're simply not getting through the numbers. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why that is going on, but as a, as a process of what it's intended to do was to actually deal with that deficit, it up to now has not done that. So, Deirdre, do you want to comment at all on 
The, I mean, it's funny, I, I noticed that Charles Coyle mentioned that he didn't see planning as an issue in terms of delivering PRS, which was an interesting contribution. He thought actually um, infrastructure was more of an issue in terms of a risk. My perception, just kind of stepping slightly back, just acting in, you know, in commercial real estate transactions, is that there's a perception that planning is very long and drawn out to get, that it can be very easily challenged. Would you agree? Um, well, yes. <laughs> it's it, it, as um, Connor mentioned earlier, and I'm, I'm sure Connor dealt with this all the time using the board. There's quite a complex European architecture that essentially sits on top that really gives the national legislature very limited room to manoeuvre within. Um, and at the minute, kind of a very hot topic is the appropriate assessment, uh, and certainly saw that in, in terms of uh, the, the development that was refused by the board at St. Anne's. Yeah. Um, however, I, I personally am in favour of timelines, um, actually designated timelines. I think it, it, it does make it, it, they have to be appropriate, obviously. Um, and it goes without saying that the local authority and the board have to be sufficiently resourced. But it does create certainty. So a lot of time we'll have developers coming in to us. And, and if their application is to the local authority in the first instance, we can give them a very clear roadmap of the timelines that pertain. When it goes uh, to the board on appeal or if the application is, is SID and is made to board panel in the first instance, um, there's obviously a statutory objective of 18 weeks that for any development of any significance will not be achieved. Um, so it can create a vacuum in terms of information for the developer, for investors, and with that um, creates uncertainty. Um, so in my view, like most things, if there is a, a certain process, even if it's understand it will be for this period, at least they know at this point we'll get a decision, or at this point they could request further information, this will be the period of time uh, to produce it, to consider it. So um, I, I think that, in my view, would, would make a, a much, um, a, much a, a really big difference to the planning system and how it's perceived. Okay. I'm going to open the floor to any questions uh, that you might have for our uh, illustrious panel. Actually, I have an app question. So, question for Connor and Stephen. Should we bring in serious restrictions on one-off rural housing in order to support development of our villages and towns to support good placemaking? There's no connection between those two things. Yeah. It's called a non-sequitur. <laughs> and I think there is government guidance on the restriction on one-off housing in the countryside anyway, which The is board told me just yesterday they permitted no one-off houses so far this year. I was just talking to a board member yesterday. Well, yeah, I, one, if you look at the statistics for house building over the, the course of the downturn, the only sector that didn't really, that didn't stop and didn't slow down too much was the, the one-off rural house building. Um, but I, I do think the more easy it is to build in the countryside, the less likely people are going to live in your small town and the small town Ireland is suffering on a lot of fronts. Uh, people can drive to the nearest bigger town, um, less agricultural employment, etc. But I think we should continue to make it harder to develop on greenfield countryside sites. Um, I think there are lots of houses in rural Ireland. And if people want to live in rural Ireland, they can buy one or refurbish one. 
um, or take an old derelict one and do it up. Mm. But eating into greenfield sites in rural Ireland, I think, is um, I think we have plenty there. So we yeah. should try and service and improve what we have. Conlon, another question for you: um, Is there an opportunity to progress PPP, quasi PPP opportunities to develop transport infrastructure? Um, I, there is there is a lot of there is a lot of interest already from the yeah. PPP oper uh, operators. So it'd probably be more the the um, transport planning authorities yes. that would decide that, and Transport Infrastructure Ireland. Yes. Um, they've already done PPPs in the roads, motorways, yeah. uh, the toll roads. Not, sh yeah. I, th I imagine some of the finance for the metros of the future, light rails, can come from the private sector. Yeah. Climate change. Um, do does the com do the um, panel think that we have an understanding of the radical actions that are needed to address climate change? <laughs> I mean, from a, on a day-to-day -day basis, certainly dealing with planning applications and design of schemes and preparation of plans, it's becoming more and more to the fore continually. Um, as a country, do I think we have? No. Um, you know, uh, we don't have half enough uh, renewable energy sources going out there. I mean, the amount of wind farms, energy, solar panel stuff going on is way too small. Uh, we don't have half enough uh, progress in terms of the electric car usage, etc. So uh, I mean, we would be aware of what's going on elsewhere in other countries, but it's taking a long time to filter through mm -hmm. here. That would be our experience on the ground. I think the question itself indicates a big problem that we have, which is that people are unaware of how much work is already going on. So one of my consultancy companies just does work for local authorities, and we do all the flood risk assessments and coastal inundation, and that's the actually where the rubber hits the road. And flood risk assessment is an integral part of all plan making and all development management in Ireland. Now, I think we, the system needs to tell the public at large that an awful lot more goes on on a day-to-day -day basis than most people realise. Um, and this is something that has been mentioned to me before. Um, Connell, you had mentioned, you know, land is finite. Um, but when we look at parts of the city, say the north inner city, uh, that we see, you know, swathes that are underdeveloped, um, despite central locations, you know, they're inside the M50, there are tracts of land which are designated agricultural. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 I, think it, I think we should, I think we could do one thing to be positive, is to look at good where we have got things right. We don't spend a lot of time looking back at where we got things wrong and where we got things right. I think one place we're getting things right is in Grange Gorman. And there's, there's parallels with the discussion about the McKee Barracks. Grange Gorman was a walled off psychiatric hospital. Very few people knew it was there or, or ever got into it. Um, so I had the benefit of... I qualify that. Uh, I voluntarily went into it for about... <laughs> uh, 15 years because I played, I played football on the, um, on the Gaelic football team belonged to the hospital. So you were in there and you were in the centre of Dublin city mm. and it was like being in a greenfield area. It was so quiet, overgrown, neglected. But what the, the redevelopment of Grange Gorman, which was done through an SDZ, it, it kept the healthcare. So there is a new psychiatric hospital, but it only takes a very small portion of the overall land. The next thing that was done was to take the protective structures and the existing buildings and transform them into fantastic educational buildings. And now the, the heart of the new uh, TU Dublin campus is being developed. It will have you know, reasonably tall buildings. It will have uh, student accommodation. It's built around playgrounds and playing pitches and connections through the site. So connecting Stony Battery with the site, connecting over to Fibsborough, 
it benefits from a quick connection to the Lewis. So this, I think that's a good example of taking a big area where they invested was early, they spent a lot of time on good urban design and then worked closely with, say, Dublin Bus and Dublin City Council on the servicing. So I think that's, that's an example of taking a big area of land and looking at the, looking at the overall and making a good long-term plan. And it, it'll take 15, 20 years for it to be fully uh, played out. Okay, if there's any questions from the floor before we wrap up. Do I have one at the back there? Sorry, yes. It's a question for Ian. Um, where, in your view, in the world gets it right in terms of infrastructure? Oh, um, let me see. Um, London um, have, have got a lot of things right. Um, they're, you know, different generations sort of ahead of us. They've been putting a lot of infrastructure in place for quite a long time, but they're, they're continually doing it. Um, I think where we have struggled um, as a country is that you know when the downturn came, a lot of things stopped, but a lot of other countries keep investing in infrastructure and keep things going so that when we come out the other end that um, the infrastructure is, is, is being upgraded and it, it's, it's continually being um, put in place. Um, a lot of the major cities in and around uh, Europe would um, would be that bit far farther ahead than us. But we're, you know, we are. I think we are making strides there. Like the the, the metro going in is is, is a big step. Um, but we need to keep at it, and we can't like that. That has stalled a number of times. It, it just has to go now, regardless of you know, what, what's ahead of us so over the coming years. That has to be locked in and, and to be put in place, and then. We also need to look at the future extensions to that and extensions to the DART, extensions to you know, all our infrastructure in, in Ireland. And we've got to put those plans in place and just lock them in and, and keep them going so that you know, for the generations to come, we, we, don't, we don't end up in a position where we're, where we're currently at or where we have been you know, over the previous few years. Thank you. OK, I just want to say thank you very much to our panellists. Um, thank you for your contribution. And uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Vanessa, and thanks to Ian, Stephen, Connell, Connor, and Deirdre. And uh, we'll move on to our fourth and final panel discussion, which is on the topic of investment, offices, and flexi space. It'll be moderated by Tom Davy, partner here at Mason Hayes and Curran. And while everyone's taking their seats, uh, I thought that was a, a fascinating glimpse and insight into what, for me, is a relatively obscure area of planning and the technical and legal aspects that go with it, and the whole contentious issue of, of height. Uh, as an amateur, and there are so many amateurs out there commenting on the issue of height, I think there's a fantastic opportunity to be grabbed in Cork, because uh, they have a huge brownfield site there in the port that they can learn from what's happened in Dublin and other cities and, and really uh, go for dense development there if properly done and, and the opportunity is there. And it's always good to see a student uh, differing from his lecturer in a positive way, isn't it? Okay, Tom, over to you. Thanks very much, uh, Vincent, and welcome all to the uh, last panel of the morning, nearly, nearly afternoon. Um, we've seen many changes in the office market uh, in recent years to include the increase in co-working, you know, um, 
increased occupier input on design, on development location even, uh, greener buildings and a focus on technology and wellness with employee retention and recruitment in mind. So I think what we're proposing to consider is the extent of these changes, are they, are some of them maybe passing trends, or are they here to stay? And we've assembled a, a really good panel here today to discuss these um, and some other issues. So immediately to my left is David Kaiser. Uh, David heads up the real estate team for UK and Ireland at WeWork. He's been with WeWork for about two years. And for his sins in a previous life, obviously, he was a real estate lawyer. So he knows the, some of the pain that we, we go through. Um, Dublin's an important part of David's remit and WeWork's remit with uh, five locations open to members and the uh, iconic Central Plaza due to open next year. Thanks for being here, David. Next is Deirdre Hayes. Deirdre is Head of Asset Management, Property Asset Management at Irish Life and is responsible for the strategic driving of asset management initiatives across a portfolio that measures in excess of 7 million square feet. So no, no, no uh, easy task there. Uh, it includes leasing, major redevelopment and refurbishment projects. Uh, Deirdre is a chartered surveyor with over 25 years experience, was previously MD of Aramark and a founding partner at HD uh, Mara O'Reilly, now Knight Frank. Uh, welcome and thanks Deirdre. Next is Gillian Curran. Gillian is Chief Investment Officer at Tetrarch and responsible for underwriting all investments for Tetrarch's portfolio. Um, and assessing the timing of potential uh, uh, sales and exit. Um, Gillian has over 20 years of experience in property and alternative investments and has worked with firms including Landis Bank Berlin and Bank of Ireland. Welcome Gillian and thanks for being here. Um, I'm conscious that we have a Hayes and a Curran on the panel. We don't have a Mason, so if anyone else would like to throw their hand up, we'd, we'd, we have an extra chair there for that purpose. Um, last and certainly not least is Sean Boyle. Sean is Head of uh, Real Estate for EMEA at Twitter. Um, and previously held a role as EMEA manager on the real estate side in Facebook. So he brings a really good tenant aspect here. He's over 15 years of experience in the Irish market and holds a master's in project management. Again, thank you, Sean, and great to have you here. So we'll kick off, I think, uh, David, with you, if that's okay. I was gonna ask you to talk to us a little bit about how co-working works and what's driving it in the current market. Sure. So I think it's probably best to start with what is co-working because it, it's developed so quickly and some of you may never even been into a co-working building. So I think if you go back quite some time, co-working was very drab offices, often hot desking or small private offices. Um, and it developed into a very design conscious and flexible space uh, with much more focus on private offices. And again, that's evolved over time actually to much larger what we call members call members, you might call them tenants or customers, uh, taking huge amounts of space, whether it be whole buildings, whole floors, uh, etc. Um, and it also went from sort of being all about flexibility, so people doing one-month contracts, to uh, actually co-working for us being pretty inflexible now, and, and people signing up for longer and longer times. Uh, and I'm sure we'll sort of talk about uh, the reason for that. So for us, co-working, and I have to say this is very much from a WeWork perspective, not, maybe not industry, um, it's, we mentioned attraction, retention of talent. It's a lot of our members now come to WeWork because we offer an experience that's very, very different from conventional office. We're obsessed with member, with end user experience. How do we make the office a better environment for employees? 
Um, and so that's very, very different from maybe what people think traditionally of co-working, which is all about flexibility. So that, that's, it's been a big evolution. Right, thanks, Dave. Second leg to that question, I suppose. What, 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 what's driving it? Is, 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 is that it in a nutshell? Is so that your more traditional landlords can't provide that service necessarily? So I think there's lots of things driving it. Flexibility is absolutely key. That, that, that is always going to form an important part of co-working. Um, I think look, I th for, for employees and for members that speak to us, um, it's the attraction retention of talent that is really, really fundamental and the focus on millennial and sort of Generation Z recruitment, where they, people look for something more now than just working in a corporate with maybe not the best culture or grab offices, just wanting something a little bit more from life. Mm. Um, and we help offer that. Uh, we, we create community in our buildings so people talk to each other and we do a lot of things to facilitate conversation through events, through our design, um, through technology. Uh, just to get people talking to each other. So, you know, if, if the likes of Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, they're, they're social media companies, but actually, in a way, make us less social. The idea for WeWork was to create this, this platform, this global network of now nearly half a million people to talk to each other and engage and feel like they can, uh, they can grow their businesses, but, but with sort of friends. Um, and I think that's what's been very, very powerful and it's led to such scale uh, and such loyalty and also such retention. Uh, you know, people, I think in the first year people come and go from our buildings, it's not for everyone. But after a year, people get it and they stay and they see the value in terms of their businesses and also helping their employees. Great. Thanks, David. David, returning to you, what role does co-working play in Irish Life's portfolio? Maybe now and, let's say, three, four years down the line. So we've been monitoring co-working for the past number of years and we've seen it grow very quickly. So it's now at 1.4 million square feet in Dublin, which is about 4% of the total stock. That's probably in the same range as global markets, which is between 1 and 5%. The way we look at co-working is like any subsector within our office portfolio. So if you were to look at our portfolio 20 years ago, it would have been heavily weighted toward the state, but it evolves. It's like co-working, it evolves. So we now would have uh, professional services, financial services, state and co-working within our, our portfolio. And the focus is very much on looking at each subsector within the portfolio and seeing what it needs in terms of design, leasing and the investment strategy. Our investors want us to add value and our occupiers want to, us to deliver a really good experience. When we're looking at the co-working, there's different models. There's the model that David alluded to here who invest heavily in an infrastructure um, for their occupiers and deliver an experience. There's, there's other models like Regis who've been operating very successfully in, in Dublin for the past 20 years. There's other models like Convene who operate very heavily towards amenity space. And then there's other models like Iconic who are more indigenous and really try and rejuvenate more tertiary locations. I see co-working staying within our portfolio and growing um, because that's what a lot of our tech companies who wouldn't have been necessarily within our portfolio 10, 15 years ago want. So I, th I think we'll be partnering with them for a period of time. So, Gillian, we've heard the views, I suppose, a, you know, we've heard David's view, it's a, a particular form of co-working, I think that's fair to say, we've heard a landlord view or one particular type of landlord. What do you see as some of the challenges to co-working in Ireland? Yeah, so look, it's a great question and I think, you know, first when, when we look at the macro picture, there are undoubtedly a lot of positive drivers. So you've got a very vibrant startup scene here in Dublin. Actually, my own husband is in a fintech startup. He loves the co-working space and he loves the coffee and the networking and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then you have just general macroeconomic expansion, which is stimulating demand. You've got Brexit refugees taking swing space. And then you've got IR4S16, uh, an accounting provision, which means that companies have to capitalize their lease obligations. So you actually have a lot of larger companies maybe thinking twice about whether they want to take on those big onerous lease obligations. But when I, on the other hand, put my slightly more maybe cautious investor hat on, I say to myself, well, you know, you've got an average seven-year lease in uh, the Dublin market that co-working firms are signing up to, and then you have a potentially shorter license agreement that they're signing with their own clients. So I'm kind of wondering how that mismatch will actually, potential mismatch, will actually play out in the next downturn and I suppose maybe feeling slightly a little bit more cautious about that. And then I suppose the second point for us as property investors is, you know, we feel like our job is to kind of take a view on supply and demand in the sector and kind of try and figure that out. And when we look at the co-working firms, we think they're kind of doing something similar. So in a way, we don't want to kind of double up on our, on our property exposure to, to a certain extent. And before I get you in, David, any response to those challenges or maybe how do, how do we work deal with some of those challenges presented by the market? Sure. So I always find it really interesting coming to Dublin. So I, I used to run uh, work across EMEA and now just UK and Ireland focus, but worked from you know, France, Spain, Israel, Italy, Germany, and nowhere is a country or a city in Dublin more obsessed about downturn because of what happened last time. I, I find it honestly fascinating as a mentality. I mean, the success since has been phenomenal. We, we love Dublin. But um, in, in, in times of a downturn, something that is very, very valuable is flexibility. So with volatility, flexibility has more value. Why would you commit for 10, 15 years or seven years to a city if you don't know if you're going to exist in that time or what the, uh, uh, if you can recruit, etc. So we, we actually think in, in times of downturn that our offering is more valuable because we offer, still offer the flexibility. What we have actually done over the last nine years is completely obsess about the next downturn, which is coming, not to scare everyone. Um, I'm sure you know better than anyone. So we, we've done lots and lots of things to basically, we have lots of levers we can pull in a downturn. And that's from very, very basic things like our margins that we make in our buildings, we know are higher than any other coworker because lots have sold or been on the market recently or come to us and showed us their accounts. And uh, the, the money we've invested in our buildings to boost density and you know, M&E, et cetera, has, has made them very resilient and helps hit certain density, which helps margin. Um, so that's been very helpful. That we've focused, focused heavily on enterprise members. So when I joined two years ago, 5% of our portfolio were enterprise. And when I say enterprise, I'm in a company with 1,000 employees or more. It's now 40% globally. It's actually about 60% in Dublin. And what enterprise members allow you to do is uh, they take a huge amount of space. They tend to sign up for a much longer period of time. And they, and they bed in. They have roots in a city because they're much more difficult to, to move or attract and grow. Um, so average length of membership agreement in Dublin is now 20 months. So it's not rolling people coming in and out. It's not someone starting a fintech without any experience or money. It's, it's, uh, it's Facebook, it's Pinterest, etc. companies with, with a lot of money and a lot of investment in the city, which should give landlords a lot of reassurance. Um, and then also, I, I think, I mean, we work and co-working maybe has just completely changed the real estate market where we're getting to the point now where a lot of enterprise members are almost outsourcing real estate to us. I mean, we have 20% of Facebook employees in WeWork buildings. Amazon are our biggest member globally. So well, I, th I think you made a good point, sort of IF the impact of IFRS. 
Um, and also a lot, a lot of people just realizing that I'm a social media company, I'm a bank, I'm a consultant, I'm amazing at those things, you know, I'm the best in my field. What do I know about property? And we know more than anyone because we design, build, acquire, operate, sell more than anyone and collect data religiously and, and do everything in house to constantly improve, iterate. So we, a lot of people are just saying, right, we work, do it. Um, and so well, it, it, we're, we're, we've almost now becoming those, those corporates. You know, that's where they're, where they're outsourcing everything to us. Yeah. There's lots of things. Thank you. Um, Sean, what does a global occupier like? We, we've heard some of comments around what the, the perception as to what tenants want and need. What does a, an entity like Twitter, with locations all around the world, what's it looking for from its buildings? And I guess, what role does co-working play in that? So from a, a traditional agreement, as in with a traditional leasing model for us, uh, we try to look for buildings that uh, are essentially a canvas on which we can overlay designs and we can make it very uniquely Twitter. Um, we ultimately want our people to be uh, love the place where they work and they want and that's an easy thing to say but incredibly difficult to actually execute um, we have even as I was looking at it before we had a example in our Paris office where our amazing marketing team won an award um, yesterday and one of the things that they had they had executed was a full exhibition over a three-month period but they used our building in our office as uh, a tool in which they could really expose uh, or highlight the or articulate the story of Twitter. And that was something that, that really dawned on me when we were having a, a small interaction. They were highlighting how valuable the workspace is to them mm -hmm. and how uniquely executed it can actually, um, how that intentionality can actually really result in something that is uh, benefiting their work. And that's ultimately what we try to do. Co-working for us, uh, I think as David mentioned before, Flexibility is the new commodity. So for us, uh, if we're going into a new location, a new market, if we're under a certain size or if the business model does not allow us to justify long-term investment, we would essentially leverage the co-working as an option, which we would um, start or test that particular market. Um, over time, as we gradually, as we grow, and once we reach a certain level, we would essentially then uh, transition into the traditional lease model. So, great. Gillian, moving away slightly, I suppose, from co-working to the more general uh, office sector, what, what does an investor like Tetrarch kind of prioritize in terms of its investment decisions, I suppose, on the office market in particular? Yeah, Tom, so maybe just to give a little bit of context around uh, Tetrarch itself, because we'd probably be best known for our hospitality investments likes of City West or Mount Juliet, for example. But people would probably be surprised to know that actually 40% of our portfolio is actually in offices, and, and it's mostly um, in, in Dublin, in the city centre, in fact. Um, and I suppose the common theme, though, that unites you know, all of our investment strategies is that we're trying to really sort of generate outsized returns. And we're trying to do that by maybe solving you know, very tricky or challenging asset management issues or by investing in areas where we think they're undervalued, but where over time they'll converge towards the more prime kind of areas. 
So when we're looking at, a, at an area for office investment, we're really trying to just map out you know, what investment is going into that area in terms of amenity, in terms of public transportation, what other occupiers are potentially planning to locate there, is there hospitality going in, leisure, retail, etc. And probably the number one out of that list is public transportation because we think you know, even if a building is maybe not as beautiful or Twitter building sounds amazing, but if it's located close to public transportation, you know, it, it increases its appeal, particularly for public sector um, tenants, which is an area that we've actually focused on um, in particular. And then I think in terms of you know, the future and, and where we are in the market, and nobody will be happier than me if there's never another downturn, believe me. But I suppose when we look at where you know, rents are, you know, they've kind of surpassed, prime rents have surpassed where they were at the previous peak. You have yields at close to historic tights. So I suppose we're kind of saying to ourselves, where is the growth really going to come from in the market? You know, on the other hand, like we have record levels of take up in the first quarter of the year. You know, there's a lot of office under construction, but half it has already been pre-let. So there's no reason to be, you know, overly pessimistic. It's just a question of the growth. Right. You mentioned public sector there and that they're a key occupier for you. I think there was a Savills report in the last few days and appeared in the Times yesterday indicating that um, there's huge space, office space requirements for the public sector since the lifting of the embargo on hiring and so on. So how, how can Tetrarch take advantage of that? Are you well positioned to do so? Yeah, I mean, we, like public sector tenants form a very, very significant part of our portfolio. And, you know, it's a sector that we really like because I suppose we feel it's, it's, it's a sector that, you know, you, you don't have much interruption in your, uh, in your rental stream during a downturn. So we really, really like it. And, you know, maybe it doesn't get the big headlines like some of the ICT occupiers, but it's quietly there in the background with a significant demand. And, you know, it's very encouraging to see actually the Savills report they said that um, so far this year, all the office jobs that have been created in the, in the city, one in three of them were actually public sector jobs. So it's a really sort of under the radar, but mm. significant sector. It's great to see. Yeah, very much so. Deirdre, I was going to ask you, and I suppose we're moving slightly back to sort of co-working and new building layouts and new ways in which buildings are operated. What's the effect on design, initial construction cost, and maybe even service charges on an ongoing basis, given that sort of new new age? So I suppose with all our buildings, we uh, our fund strategy is to design buildings that are best in class. So with that in mind, they're all you know any of the new developments are all NZ compliant. It's a statutory requirement. Uh, they're LEED certified. They're B or A3 rated. And we're also going for certifications because we love certifications for well and wired score. And those requirements are actually very aligned to the co-working, but all of the occupiers that we're actually, using, we're actually working with. So sustainability is a big uh, agenda for us. It's also a big agenda for our investors as well as our occupiers. When we sit down and look at co-working within that confines, the things that we see, uh, and this is both just in Ireland and also at a global level with our uh, parent, is that there's probably a heavier strain on M&E 
for example, because there could be a lot more people within the within the office building there. And in Ireland, that has maybe impact in terms of on a rate per square foot in terms of fire code and you know fire safety and BCAR. But we work with our tenants on all of those matters. The other end would probably be on lifts. Uh, the amenity space could have a level of strain, so that requires more maintenance. If air conditioning is required 24-7 by a co-working operator, um, that can have its challenges within a service charge budget. But again, it's about transparency, so it's about showing how you can carve that out and also working with the tenants and the co-working operator and saying, do you actually need the, the air conditioning 24-7? And that's what we do. So we sit down and draft up tenant handbooks, and that's an evolving document that's fed into by both landlords and the tenants to try and evolve it. In terms of cost, I think if you manage the scale, because we're actually collecting a lot of the data in terms of energy and waste and uh, consumption, you can actually try and drive the cost to you know an acceptable level. On construction, I would say that NZEB has probably added a little bit more on the construction rather so than co-working, and that's purely to future-proof. We're not here just to focus on an occupier, we're actually here to focus on the occupier, the investor, all of the other stakeholders. So it's a generational interest as opposed to just a, a single occupier interest. Okay. Thanks. David, I was going to turn back to you if I can and ask um, from WeWork's perspective, to, to what extent your member requirements drive your location decisions and maybe the scale of that in that particular location? Sure. So uh, we've almost flipped the real estate process on its head. Um, I mean, we obviously used to acquire sites, then build them, and then sell them. And now, actually, we work so closely with our members. And uh, I said this in a discussion before, we're very fortunate that we you know, we deal with the office manager and the CEO, the head of real estate, the FD. But also because we actually operate our buildings, uh, and we have to make sure the service quality is is pristine because some people are rolling monthly and we want them to renew and retain them. So we also speak to the marketeer, the lawyer, the engineer in the building. So we, we get both sides um, of that. So what we do is we, we track demand now and we, we're very vertically integrated and get a lot of data about demand so we can pull up heat maps about where big corporates want to be, when they want to be there, what volume of staff, why they want to be in a certain market. And we can actually map cities now, you know, who are the gym operators, is Starbucks there, is Barry's Bootcamp there. Uh, Etc. What, what, what competitors are there? What, what's the pricing? What tenants are in that market? So you can make very data-led decisions, and then feeding in the actual demand from members means we can actually go to a building or go to a new a new submarket or a new country, and acquire real estate very purposefully for often a, a, almost an anchor member, uh, and then also because we have we have so much data around about how people occupy and how a bank would occupy differently from a tech company from a consultant and we can see how our buildings are occupied, and it's most powerful where we have most buildings. So in my market, London, we have 40 buildings open, so we're creating huge amounts of data. So we can actually fit out now based on who we know is going to occupy the space. So if you think about that, that means we can build much quicker, save, save money doing that. We can create much more effective, useful space for our members, which is more pleasurable. They'll pay more, they'll stay longer. So it has the benefit for members where they have a nicer experience and the benefit for us where we make more money. Uh, which is also important. So it's 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 we have the, the relationship with the member cannot be underplayed. Great, thank you. Um, 
Sean, I was going to ask you, we've touched on sort of greener buildings, the certification that's associated with it. I know Twitter's uh, HQ at One Cumberland was awarded LEED Platinum certification. Um, how important is that to a, a global entity like, like Twitter? It's, it's incredibly important and I think it's incredibly topical now. We, um, we want to, uh, we perceive ourselves as kind of the physical embodiment of the appreciation of the company to staff. And I think that what we want to do is earn pe people's trust and respect. And I think one of the things that we do, as fancy as it is to have that LEED Platinum certification, the things that really excite us are the actions that we take that influence outcomes and habits and that the educational pieces in terms of how we communicate all the green efforts. Like we removed 35,000 plastic uh, uh, bottles from our inventory last year, like now it's per year, where um, we have introduced bees that produce honey for our office. Like, I know we sound extraterrestrial sometimes to people, but it's true and it's, it's genuine and it's authentic. And I think that if you approach it with honesty and transparency and when you're, the things that you're lacking, I think people do respect that a lot. So green initiatives are extremely, extremely important. I think that that certification is one of those testaments of that, um, how intentional we are on it. But I think that the smaller, actually even this morning, one of our colleagues um, showcased a, a tweet uh, that had um, uh, one of our signs was made up of our own old phone booths. Um, and to see that happen and to see people celebrate the initiatives that you do, albeit small and anecdotal, but they're things that people, they fill them with pride. And you get real buy-in from your people. Then, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know we're nearing um, uh, the, the time limit here. I was going to ask Deirdre maybe just to comment briefly on the role of technology in in buildings. I think it's it's something we haven't really talked about yet. Yeah, it, and it's something that is is real focus now. I'm actually really excited about it. We've started to see smart buildings coming to play, and I think that's going to drive towards smart cities. Some of the technology, a lot of it has been driven from the M&E uh, end of uh, the discipline where you would have had previously had a BMS which now can drive and operate a building remotely. What we have started to do is develop apps within the portfolio where we can manage the, the data and you know, collect the data to give to tenants which actually t informs them of their energy consumption. It tells them where, which building, you know, where the light is on, if they don't need the light on, for example, and they can actually drive down their own operational costs, but also it's driving the sustainability agenda. And it helps us to engage with our tenants. It's the same uh, on, we also are trying to de deliver experiences. So it's similar to what David is talking about. We now have apps across our portfolio, which we can now book a haircut, get your dry cleaning sorted. And we'll roll that out in a different requirements for different occupiers. So that's something that I think is going to really emerge over the next short while. We're doing it in the residential funds as well. Um, and I think that's something that's really exciting. Thank you. Okay, well, we might go to the audience then at that stage. Oh, I have a question here. Um, and this is a question for, for Sean. You'll be delighted, uh, Sean. Um, it's a question around uh, your staff and, and uh, support for your staff when it comes to sourcing housing and accommodation needs. 
So I suppose that's related to maybe some of the previous panels that we had here and, and our housing shortage. So I guess given the influx of people to Twitter regularly, yeah, and I think that clearly very topical in Dublin as well. Uh, we, we do offer and support, um, particularly for a lot of our, um, we try to attract the best and sometimes that involves attracting people from our other offices to come to Dublin. Uh, and as it relates to Dublin specifically, we will provide programs where we help all of our uh, staff to come and we'll educate them about all the right areas and find schools and things like that. So we're, we're fairly, very, very keen. We want this to be a long-term relationship and for that to happen, we want to make sure that people get to that, um, to their home as quickly as possible uh, and a home that they're gonna love. We want their experience not to just end at work. It's just that it's, so we're very intentional in our approach. Okay, thanks, Sean. Another question, and um, David, I think it's probably appropriate for you. you you've touched on this already, to be fair, but I, I, I will ask the question. How, as a business model, how are co-working operators insulated against an economic shock? I think particularly as some of the tenants are granular uh, owner-managed or SME business. So I think I should say co-working... I think, a lot, I think next downturn, a lot of co-workers will go out of business. I think it'll be huge, huge consolidation. Um, biz, the, I mean, I, I don't know the Dublin market as well as London, apologies, but I know in Dublin there's a, a pretty much, sorry, in London there's like 1,600 co-working operators. So we have 1% of the office market in London with the biggest private occupier in London, but really we have teeny tiny proportion um, of co-working. Uh, and so there's so many new people coming to, to the industry, coming to the uh, co-working who don't have a brand, who don't have an identity, they don't have uh, members buying into them long term, they don't offer scale, so the corporates aren't always very interested in them because they, you know, a corporate doesn't have to go to 30 different countries and sign 30 different agreements if they can just do one with one uh, co-worker. Um, they don't invest in their buildings, so there's no density, they can't make margin. So anyone can make money at the top of the market, and we are the first ones to admit that. So I think there'll be huge consolidation, um, and what, what we have done, as I've said before, briefly before, is focus on taking the best, best buildings in the best cities. So, for example, we're in one of Deirdre's buildings. We completely agree, the best in class. Um, and uh, focus on the enterprise relationships because we think even if there is uh, an economic shock, um, it's not going to be uh, for, it might affect some smaller companies, but a lot of the larger companies will survive. And then also building up the, the diversity of sectors we're in. So, you look at what happened at RWG in 2002, it was very, very tech focused. In, in the US, they were 80% plus tech. So we very, very purposefully have a very diverse income. So about 20% of our members are tech. It's, it's banks, it cons it's consultants, etc. So if there's a shock in banking, we can run the rest of the portfolio. And then if you've got the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Citibank, Salesforce, IBM, all going to the wall, then I think people have got bigger problems than co-working. <laughs> fairness. That's a fair comment, I think. So uh, unless there are any other questions from the floor, We'll, uh, we'll maybe. Hi, uh, Oliver Fitzgerald, Mason Days and Curran. David, a question for you. Um, where do you see uh, WeWork and co-working in general in Ireland in five years, say? Um, so I, I actually think people always ask us to predict the future. I think it's impossible to predict the future in co-working because if you look back five years, uh, you would never have predicted co-working would be where it is now and offering the sort of services and have the buy-in from corporates that it does now. So it's really, really hard to say. That's me sort of dodging the question. I think there's huge growth 
Uh, I mean, London, which is the biggest co-working market in the world, we're between five to eight percent. New York's about half that. But when we speak to place-making landlords, uh, you know, likes of Hermes, Stanhope, Argent, they're talking about 25, 30 percent of their portfolio being co-working, so maybe that's where the sort of the watermark is right now. And also we find actually with a lot of our members that when they go into buildings, they're almost demanding a co-working operator sharing the building so they can have that flex space. So I think there's huge, huge room for growth. Uh, I think technology for us will pay a bigger, bigger price. I think they're just completely right. We invest, we've invested very heavily in technology for the last six years, and there are lots of our own uh, programs. Um, to you know, map uh, map demand to see how a building works to make sure it's used efficiently to improve member experience. I think tech will be a new a, a big big focus of that, but um, that's probably the extent of my crystal ball gazing. Thanks, Dave. So I think that's it. I think we've we've um, we've learned that these are not fads or temporary trends. I think these are um, co-working and a focus on flexibility and. Uh, um, greener buildings, technology, collaborative working spaces are certainly things that are here to stay. Um, it just leaves it to me then to thank the panel for being here today. Thank you very much for your input and thank you all for listening. Thanks indeed, Tom, and thanks to David, Deirdre, Gillian and Sean. Uh, I found that fascinating, I must say. Um, uh, fantastic insight from David. I thought that somebody has traveled and worked in as many jurisdictions you have, uh, how focused we are on the next downturn already. Understandable, I suppose, but perhaps we should keep our head above the parapet. Um, I've been watching Tetrarch, and I didn't realize you were so invested in commercial property, Gillian, but I've been watching what you've been doing on Marlborough Street. And as somebody who lives in Glasnevin, I think developments like that in the north inner city where the Lewis is changing things, where retail clearies hopefully will take off, Developments like that are, are, are going to bring residential with them and bring, bring life to the city. So uh, 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 watching that with interest, but it's, it's a fantastic development. Okay, that's enough from me because I can feel a venerable presence behind me. <laughs> Without further ado, somebody I've known a long time and who I always love listening to and reading, uh, Colin McCarthy, economist and lecturer in the School of Economics, UCD, and general commentator on life and horsemen passing by and obviously somebody very au fait with the technology he's about to use, yeah. Colin McCarthy. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, thanks very much. Before I begin to depress you all, uh, uh, I couldn't help having a, a little giggle when the panel before last mentioned Grange Gorman. And those of you who grew up in Dublin will recall that Grange Gorman used to be the site of what used to be called a mental hospital. Uh, and they had a football team called, I think it was called St. Brendan's, was it? In, in the Leicester Senior League. Uh, I knew, not terribly well, <coughs> the late Donald McCann. And Donald, was a, he died some years ago. Uh, and he was a great actor uh, in the Abbey Theatre. And, screen actor and all that. But he started life, or working life, as a rewrite and sub in the old Irish press. So he used to sit in Cave when he was young, writing what they call a brick. A brick is a one paragraph news story. Uh, and his job was to write 10 bricks 
about each game in the Leinster Senior League on Saturday to go into the first edition of the old Sunday Press. <coughs> and he nearly got fired in the following circumstances. The referees would phone in the result, he'd write the 10 bricks and off to Mulligans. And he wrote a brick which was, header wins for Grange Gorm. <laughs> <coughs> and and the, 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 they threatened to fire him and they eventually relented, but there you go. Um, okay, the, the, there is a rosy scenario always. Uh, I think it's just a, a feature of de demographic, uh, uh, demo democratic politics. Um, but I'm, I'm not attracted to it because this is year six of a recovery in the Irish economy uh, which has been more vigorous than any of us thought. Uh, I've just been reading Patrick Conan's new book, uh, which has been launched next week, and it's his reminiscences about the financial crisis. And Patrick was governor of the Central Bank, as you know, for six years. Um, and uh, it reminded me of just how bleak it looked in 2010, 2011. Uh, the attempt to keep out of an IMF program failed. Um, all the uh, stuff that was done in the Department of Finance from 2008 to 2010 was really designed to prevent that from happening, but we ended up in an IMF program. Uh, and in the initial years, or initial months anyway, uh, uh, the, the first half of 2011, and Patrick writes about this, uh, we all thought that we might get out of it, that, that you know, the bailout was bailout number one, and that there would be numbers two, and possibly three, as there was in Greece. <laughs> as it happened, <coughs> the economy recovered very quickly, uh, from about 2013 onwards. So this is year six of recovery. Now, a recovery is called a recovery because it's a recovery. Uh, you can't recover twice. Uh, so the fact that it's year six of recovery, uh, you, you, you need to, to uh, file that away. The budget is balanced. Last year, <coughs> government revenue and government spending were more or less in balance. For the first time, for 11 years, uh, but it did happen. The rosy scenario says, this country is just terrific. Everything is fine. Uh, crisis is over. We can cut taxes, uh, we can increase expenditure a little bit and have an election uh, and everything can be afforded. Uh, I don't buy that. The risk of another polyfinance crisis here at some stage over the next few years I think is low enough if we're careful, but it's not zero. It's almost never zero in a small open economy. Uh, some damn thing can always go wrong. Uh, and the number of damn things that could go wrong now, uh, you know, it, it, it's quite a sizable list. The fact that it's year six of recovery on its own has to make you a little bit nervous. Recoveries do not last for 
10 years or 12 years. They just don't. Uh, and, and the recovery has featured a reduction in the rate of unemployment from 16% to 4.4% in the most recent figures. That means the rate of unemployment has fallen by nearly 12%. It can't fall by another 12% because it would be minus 8% uh, if that were to happen. So you can only use up the unemployed capacity and resources in the economy once. And when you've used them up, they're gone. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't grow from that point, but you can't recover. Uh, re recoveries are time-limited of their nature. <coughs> there are other problems. The external environment you all know about. Um, there's a trade war underway uh, between uh, the United States. I think it's between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, but it seems to have involved China, Mexico, Canada, and Europe. Uh, and uh, it's very dangerous. Um, the Eurozone crisis uh, was successfully uh, batted away uh, after Mario Draghi replaced Jean-Claude Trichet, whom I won't mention again, uh, uh, and, and the ECB finally got on top of what was going on in, in, in the Eurozone. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of casualties, and this country was one of them. Uh, and there could be another Eurozone crisis, uh, probably emanating from Italy uh, this time round. Uh, and Draghi retires in the autumn, so who replaces him is pretty important. And finally, there's Brexit. Uh, I've been very pessimistic about Brexit for lots of reasons. <laughs> One of them is not popular in this country, but here it is. What's bad for Britain is bad for Ireland. Uh, if, if the UK political leadership decide to inflict serious damage on the UK economy, uh, then that is a bad thing uh, from our point of view. Uh, and it looks as if that's what they're going to do. Uh, even a soft version of Brexit probably means a return of the land frontier in some form. Uh, if they crash out, uh, it will be chaotic, as everybody knows. And east-west trade for the economy of the Republic is much more important than north-south trade. The, the importance of the land frontier is more political than uh, economic. Uh, and damage to east-west trade uh, between Ireland and Britain uh, could be very serious indeed. So, uh, the, 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 you know, uh, this is the situation that we're in. Uh, I think the extent of labor shortages is beginning to hit home with people. I met a chap who runs one of the dairy processing companies down in the southeast, a uh, big plant. He now cannot get forklift drivers. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever driven a forklift. It's not too hard. Uh, if you can drive a car, or particularly if you can drive a tractor, which everybody in the southeast learns to do 
boys and girls at the age of about 12, uh, then you can be taught how to drive a forklift safely in about a week. So this is not a super high-skilled job. It's not like driving a great big articulated truck, which is qu quite difficult and you have to get properly certified and everything. Uh, this fella can't get forklift drivers. Now that's really serious. Uh, and it's an absolute constraint. He ended up with management volunteering to do a few shifts driving a forklift. Now that is a labor shortage. Uh, this is a chart from the report that was released a couple of days ago uh, by Seamus Coffey and his colleagues in the Fiscal Advisory Council. <laughs> and it's a terrific report, incidentally. Uh, very, very long, technically very proficient, uh, very well put together, uh, and a bit scary. Uh, and it establishes, I think, that the economy is very close to uh, full employment of resources, not just of labour, uh, and that it's time now for budget policy to pay some attention to that. Uh, Seamus Coffey is of the view, and it's a view that I share, that the government's budget should have gone into surplus at least two years ago, and arguably three years ago. Didn't, uh, and it got to be balanced last year by accident. There was a big overshoot on current spending, but there was also a fortuitous overshoot on government revenue especially corporation tax revenue. So it's a fluke that the budget got to be balanced. The, pre the immediate pressure is in the labor market. Uh, when things got messy uh, from 2008 onwards, the scale of decline in the labor market here was really spectacular. Uh, there were 300,000 jobs lost, and very rapidly in just two years, Total job loss a bit more than that, but in, in, in the two years after the balloon went up, uh, there were 300,000 people disemployed, and, and not all in construction by any means. And the results included a resumption of net outward migration, briefly, uh, but very, very high unemployment. So. Uh, these are the patterns uh, in the domestic economy uh, as measured by employment. And you can see that even this year, full-time employment has been growing at 4% per annum. And it was grown a bit more than that uh, until just recently. Uh, that is not sustainable. I mean, that's an extraordinary uh, rate of growth in employment, and it's been met in part <coughs> by uh, a significant resumption of net immigration uh, into Ireland, including net immigration of graduates, uh, which is interesting. We read a lot about the number of <coughs> graduates uh, expensively educated by the taxpayers who swan off to Australia um, with, with degrees in nursing 
and go on TV to threaten never to return unless their palms are crossed with silver, more, more silver, uh, having been educated for free. Uh, but there you go. Uh, but it's interesting that, that in recent years there has been net immigration of graduates. So if the Irish taxpayers are getting a raw deal, the Polish taxpayers are getting a rotten deal. Uh, educating people to send them over here. The, the, the external environment, <coughs> uh, I think, is, is a worry. It always is for Ireland because of the extreme openness of the economy. Something that I think people don't understand as fully as they should <laughs> is that Ireland is not a continental European economy. It's a, a mid-Atlantic. It's a windy rock in the North Atlantic. It's not a part of continental Europe. And that is reflected uh, in the exposures of the economy. And Ireland is very exposed to how well or badly things go in the United States, both because it's our biggest export market. We sell more stuff in the United States than we do in any of the European countries. So <coughs> that matters. Uh, and secondly, it is a really big source of foreign direct investment. Uh, I spoke at an event in, in Paris about a year ago, and there was some geyser from the French finance ministry. Uh, all these French firms in Ireland are not paying tax, or they're paying tax to you guys. So I said, name one. And that was the end of that conversation. There, there, there are no French firms or German firms, or Italian firms, of any consequence. Uh, and they're nearly all American. So, so there is a foreign treasury that is losing tax revenue because of the weaknesses in our corporate tax arrangements. It's the US treasury. It's not any continental European treasury. <laughs> and the remedy, to some degree, is in the hands of Congress. Uh, who have left holds in the US corporate tax code. Any, anyway, it's the way it is. But if you believe, and I do, that the US economy's had a good run and is probably due a bit of a slowdown, anyhow, Trump or no Trump, uh, then that has an impact here. Uh, and the strength of inward investment here the last few years uh, has been in part due to the, the better performance in the United States. The medium-term prospects in Europe, as you probably know, uh, are not all that encouraging. Uh, and all of the calculations that have been done uh, suggest that Brexit will hit the UK economy hard and the Irish economy nearly as hard. Uh, not quite as hard, but close. Now, Let's get around to property. What happens if there's a slowdown, tax revenues uh, weaken, uh, there's been a loss of control over public spending, as we all know? What happens? It's very interesting what happens. They cut the capital program, always. If you go back over the last 30, 40 years in Ireland, Politicians are always reluctant to address a public finance bind 
by cutting current expenditure. They whinge about it endlessly, but if you look at the figures, uh, what actually happened here in 2009-10-11 is that the public capital program was slashed. There were reductions in current spending, especially in public sector payroll costs, and there were some cuts to programs in, uh, on the current side because of onboard SNP and so on. But they weren't that big. Uh, every pound that was saved off current spending got 1,000 times as much airtime as a pound cut off the capital program. Uh, and Vincent Wall is p partly responsible for this. Uh, but, 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 but there you go. Uh, and it is very difficult to cut current spending. Uh, it's very easy to cut capital spending, not least because you can say, it might be a lie, we're not cutting this, we're going to defer it. Uh, and that's what they did. And that's what they did on all previous occasions. So uh, I think there is real, and it's subconscious with finance ministers. Um, I don't think Pascal Donnelly has ever said this, uh, but if he has absorbed the echoes from the walls in, in Merriam Street, he will know that all of his predecessors, when push comes to shove, you take the hatchet to the capital program. It's mad to do things this way, but that's the way they do things. Um, there's a, a, an article in the Irish Times this morning. Surprise, surprise. There is another 2019 prospective overshoot in the health budget. Again, uh, and on cue, uh, despite the fact that there was a, a big overshoot provided for last year and a big increase using the overshot figure for last year as a baseline, it was provided for this year. Um, what's this? Um, so it looks as if there is a threat to the government's budget numbers for, for 2019 coming from the, from the same familiar sources last year. Uh, and, and this chart from the fiscal Advisory Council report shows uh, that a large part of the spending growth in the last few years has been unplanned. It's within the year creep in current budgets, and those are the numbers. The other point that, that people have been making is the volatility of corporation tax revenues. Corporation tax is producing far more money than people had expected. Um, uh, you'd have to prudently say, uh, you know, that's not going to last forever. Uh, there's also specific threats from the international uh, demands for reform in corporation tax. The other point is that th there are other unsteady sources of government tax revenue here. The worst was stamp duty, and we all know that stamp duty 
produced extraordinary revenues during the bubble, uh, and the revenues duly evaporated uh, when the balloon went up. Uh, stamp duty has been sharply reduced. Uh, there's less reliance on it now. It's been partly restored for commercial real estate. I think that was a mistake, uh, but there you go. There are some other very volatile sources of revenue. Uh, one that nobody noticed in 2009 and 10, it, people stopped buying cars. We have very big purchase taxes on cars in Ireland, higher than in Britain, uh, higher than most places. And if people suddenly decide, I'll keep that banger on the road for another year or two, there's a big, big uh, loss of tax revenue. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the advice from the IMF and everybody else was to broaden the tax base onto less volatile uh, sources of revenue. Uh, that's where the property tax came from. And water charges was meant to be the same. And the politicians bottled it, if you know what I mean. Uh, so, so, so what do you do? Um, well, you can hope for the best. Uh, things could be fine with continued growth and no budget problems. Uh, and there might be no Brexit. It's still possible that uh, the British, you know, there'd be unilateral entitlement to revoke or have another referendum. Uh, that's the best outcome for us. I think it's the best outcome for them too, but that's their business. Uh, at this stage, you'd have to say it's a bit less likely uh, and a hard Brexit looks more probable. Um, but, but if there was a, a soft Brexit plus no international slowdown, plus no adverse pressure on corporation tax, plus no Eurozone crisis in Italy. And that's what's called a four-horse accumulator. Uh, if, if, if you think all those horses are going to come in, then you can relax. So that's all I want to say. <laughs> Apart from the four-horse accumulator, folks, uh, that whole presentation there is what's called a scare before lunchtime. <laughs> I, I, you know, I tend to happen to agree, uh, despite your criticism of my and the media's involvement in, uh, in putting pressure on government to, uh, to spend inappropriately and, and injudiciously. Um, let, let, let's take the in-between, that it's not as rosy as... as, as it's not going to be as rosy as possible. It may not be quite as bleak as the four-horse accumulator comes in. What does that realistic, in your view, perspective of the next three to five years yeah. mean for the people in the audience in terms yeah, of yeah, well, property well, development, investment? Yeah, yeah well, well, you know, uh, all four horses are unlikely to come in together. But, but if there's a list of four damn things that are going to go wrong, then you should proceed on the basis that one or two of them will go wrong. Fair enough. Uh, and you don't have to know which one. Uh, and, and, and the case, this is a very hard point to get across to, to politicians, I find. The case for caution in macroeconomic management here in Ireland uh, is not that you know 
a specific thing that's going to arise that's going to have to be dealt with. You don't, that's it. But, but that's the whole point. It's because you don't that, that there's a case for being cautious. Uh, and, and the case, so, so uh, there's no point asking me which cock-up that might happen in the next five years is going to be the one. I don't know. Uh, all I know is that five years entirely free of nasty surprises is very unlikely. It's, it's rarely happened. Uh, and the economy is very small, it's very open, and it's very heavily borrowed. Uh, the last crisis in, in 2007 or 8, which was a domestically induced banking crisis, we went into it with very low exchequer debt. And that wasn't enough to protect us as it transpired. Now, I, I think it's most unlikely <laughs> that there'll be another banking crisis here. Uh, you know, crises are always different. Uh, but whatever happens, we go into it with a very high outstanding debt ratio. The, the, the debt ratio here is not as bad as Greece. It's not as bad as Italy. And that's the end of the list. <laughs> Follow that. Um, hopefully, hopefully, and I, I take all the qualifiers you, you put out there, and I think most reasonable people in the audience will, will be bearing that in mind as well, but hopefully we won't get to a situation over the next 10 years where we see really substantial, significant net emigration again because of either an external shock or the way we manage our own affairs. On that basis, you know, regardless of how we're doing at any point in time, does it look like we are going to need somewhere between 25 and 35,000 new homes of, yeah. of some sort over that time frame? Yeah, I, I kind of dislike, I was chatting to kind of skin about this earlier on, I dislike these quantitative targets for the, how many houses do we need to build every year? Uh, I don't like that, uh, for lots of reasons. A target is not a policy, you know, uh, I mean, if you ask the fellow who runs Shamrock Rovers, what's his policy? If he says, our policy is to win the league, then he's not going to do well, you know? <laughs> Your policy is to get rid of the centre half and get a better one, uh, and so on. Uh, so, so this confusion of targets with policy is an Irish disease. So I don't like people saying our target is so many thousand houses a year. Anyway, you've got to be functional about it. What's the problem? The problem is that people on modest incomes can afford neither house purchase nor rents in the greater Dublin area. That's the problem. And the solution to it is to bring that state of affairs to an end. Through supply. And the only way you can bring that state of affairs to an end is by achieving a reduction in house prices and rents. Now, if you're a politician, you cannot go on TV and say, now, boys and girls, your house is worth 500,000 quid, but actually it isn't. Uh, that's ridiculous, and we are going to try to make sure that it's only worth 300,000 uh, over the lifetime of the next government. And that's the problem. You can do it by stealth, uh, and if you build enough, and if you uh, uh, address the ridiculous zoning <laughs> and planning rules, uh, then that's where you'll end up. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed uh, a, a recent episode. There's a bunch of naive guys 
have a derelict site in Dublin 4, I guess. They were refused, it's zoned, it's in a residential area, so it's zoned residential, so it's not zoning. They were refused planning permission in part on the grounds of height for a four-story block of apartments. Uh, now, most of Georgian Dublin is five stories. Uh, so, so the following is the case. Uh, if George IV in the 1830s was looking for planning permission from the Corpo to build Georgian Dublin, he would have been refused <laughs> by some of these geezers 200 years ago. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're dealing with. But I, I, I think the objective uh, has to be to build in the inner suburbs apartments, in the outer suburbs, the rolling prairies of West and North Dublin, uh, build houses, uh, and just keep building until people can afford them. Supply. <laughs> One last question to you, and I know you have been here from the start. I, I saw you coming in this morning, which lifted my heart. Um, the Land Development Agency. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a good start. I was going to ask you, do you think it can change things, that it can win the turf wars it's going to have? Because I know you have a view that we already have too much undeveloped land in Dublin already, including large public parks like St. Anne's. Yeah, um, land use in Dublin is terrible. Uh, and and uh, I'm sure uh, anybody who's thought about urban planning would agree with that. We have a, we have a small number of large city parks uh, if you were starting from scratch, you would have a large number of small city parks. And that's uh, one small example. We also have quite a lot of one-story residential within a mile or two of the city centre. That's true. Uh, which people kind of forget that, but that's the way it is. All along the Grand Canal, good part of Phibsborough, bits of Sandymount, bits of Rings, all one story. Uh, an English friend of mine who was over I hadn't been here before looking around and said, this reminds me of cities in East Africa. They're called shanty towns. <laughs> that they've got inner suburbs of one story. Uh, uh, but there's a historical reason for that. Uh, those places were on the edge of the city when the one story residential was built. It's all 120, 150 years old. And we also have plenty of derelict sites <laughs> in, uh, uh, in the central areas of the city. But one of my, I'm not concerned really about the, the land development agency. I think it's a good idea. Um, it is not the case that the underused and derelict land in Dublin mostly belongs to public authorities. That's not the case. A lot of it belongs to public authorities and they fight like cats to hold on to it and to continue to underutilize it. So I wish the best of luck. To, to the new agency. But there's a lot of derelict land, underutilized land, inappropriately used land uh, in, in the city and on the outskirts, which does not belong to public authorities. So we've got a zoning and planning problem, even if this agency succeeds. Uh, I'll finish with two very quick stories. <coughs> in 1988, I was sitting in the office of the late Sean Cromine, who was the Secretary of the, the 
partner finance, Sean, died last year. He was looking across the road at what's now the Marion Hotel. It was a row of unoccupied, derelict Georgian buildings with broken windows, pigeons flying in and out, and grass growing out of the roof. And it belonged to the government. It belonged to the Land Commission, which had ceased to operate. Uh, the Land Commission was set up 100 years earlier to take the land of the dreaded English and give it to the peasants. Uh, and Sean asked me in his manner, I think the peasants have all the land now. So that's right. Well, why don't we do something with these flipping buildings? <laughs> and the Land Commission had gone. They'd found a smaller office. So we flogged, or he did, uh, flogged the buildings to Lachlan Quinn and a few other people who built the Marion Hotel. But that was easy because the Land Commission uh, had kind of ceased to function. Didn't mean loads of them weren't still, still drawing salaries. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, and this is 1988, uh, there were six army barracks in Dublin. There was Clancy Barracks up behind Houston Station, Collins, which they still used, Griffith, which they still used. They still owned the Beggar's Bush Garage, uh, uh, barracks, McKee, which is up beside the Phoenix Park, and the one in Cahalbrew, which is 40 acres of rock mines. And we tried in 1988 to shift them out of these places. And we told them that Queen Victoria had garrisoned the city against the natives. Uh, and she was quite right to be nervous. Uh, but there was no longer any need to do this. Uh, and this is in 1988 now. That's 30 years ago, is it? Mm -hmm. uh, and we said that when there is an insurrection to overthrow the state, it is unlikely to start in Dublin 6. <laughs> uh, and get the bloody army out of there. And they produced wheelbarrowfuls. Uh, and there was no housing crisis then either, don't forget. So there was only one motive for doing it, namely get to flog that land and get a few quid for it and clear off out of the city. Um, and now there's two motives. One is get a few quid for it, and two, uh, we have a housing emergency. But at that time, they produced wheelbarrow loads of reasons why this couldn't be done. They've since got out of Clancy Barracks, that's apartments now, isn't it? Yeah. Kennedy uh, Wilson, I think. Uh, they have got out of Collins, which belongs to the museum. Uh, they have... Beggar's Bush. Beggar's the Bush. Uh, yeah, and, a, and the print museum, which is very good. Uh, what else? Griffith is, is now... a school in the college? Is a college, and so on. <laughs> but they're still in uh, rat mines trying to uh, keep the burgers... Uh, of rat mines, uh, quiet and loyal to the state, uh, and they need to move. So, so, so there was a second board snip uh, ten years ago, and the boys got out the files, and they said, "Here we go." And we went through the same flipping stuff twenty years later, uh, and they came back. Uh, if we leave rat mines, 
we will have to build a new barracks in Curra, and it will cost more. So in the interests of saving the money, lads, right, we are going to stay in rat mines, and of course, that means the generalist can go home for lunch in Tenure, uh, which is what a lot of it is about. Uh, so it's ridiculous that, that uh, the army is still in rat mines. You can make, you can make case for McKee uh, uh, up beside the Phoenix Park, uh, but there should be only one barracks uh, uh, in Dublin. Um, <coughs> the, 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 the other uh, issues about state-owned land uh, the bus garages mm. are, are there because they were built by the Dublin United Tramway Company. Now, don't go through all six of them, Colin, because it's one of that. Which is no longer with us. So, so I'm not in the guys' land development agency. I just think they're going to have a series of mm. intense battles with entrenched bureaucracies. Ladies and gentlemen, economist, destroyer of guff, <laughs> and raconteur superb. Sorry, sorry, I had to bring things to an end, but it is one o'clock. I can hear a few stomachs rumbling, and I know it's a busy day for you all. Colin McCarthy, superb. Thank you. Um, and some of you may know that one of the denizens of those land commission buildings before they became derelict was Flann O'Brien. Um, uh, <laughs> who wasn't very productive on the part of the state, but I think cast a wry look on, on the way things are run here as well. Uh, uh, very quickly, I found that, I, I do a little bit of this every now and again, periodically when they let me out, and I found this morning, and I'm not just saying this, I found this morning, from start to finish, the most consistent quality of contribution from panellists uh, that I've experienced in years. I really, I really mean that. And also the quality of the questions that came up. Obviously, you're all participants in this sector, but they still, I thought they were very focused and, 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 and thank you for your contribution. I think Colm's realistic uh, perspective on some of the clouds that are on the horizon is, is very important. I think none of us in this room should or will forget that at the heart of our housing crisis and property crisis is a lot of human suffering at the moment. Um, but I think a lot, of, a lot of positive things are happening, uh, both driven by government and their agencies and by the private sector. The situation is evolving. Colin's right, guys like me don't tell it often enough. Uh, there are positive things happening out there. I think we're beginning to get on top of it. Uh, hopefully we're not derailed by a shock or, or bad management. Um, but I think those actually doing this stuff need to communicate that message better themselves as well. I'll leave you on that note. Thank you. Enjoy your lunch.